You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to trash since All right, everybody, welcome to the GGTMC, the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, your favorite podcast for the last 12.3 years, I think. That's a long time. <laughs> it is. A lot of stuff has happened in, in those 12 years. Um, most films are shot digitally now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Internet's gotten faster uh, for some. Yeah. I'm trying to think of some other things that have changed. Uh, we all have a lot more patience. That was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> that was, yeah. uh, no, that, see, that one was funny. Yeah, that's a good one, man. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, we are back. We uh, I don't have a whole lot to talk about in the intro here. I want to thank everybody that's still uh, donating to the show. Please continue to do so. We really appreciate it over here. Uh, keeps us rocking and rolling and uh, doing what we love to do, which is talking Hip about deep in lobster tail. Yeah. I mean, yes, yeah, more like uh, crawfish tails. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say ramen noodles, but yeah, hey. same thing, just a smaller version, right? Yeah, it's the yeah, B, yeah. the B version of the lobster tail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this week, uh, we're gonna do we got a, we got a deep cut. And we got a, well, we got, uh, I guess you could say they're both kind of a little bit deep cuts. Uh, one, I don't think anybody really talks about much with uh, a certain actor, but we're doing uh, The Hunter uh, with Steve McQueen, directed by, I believe, Buzz Kulik. Mm-hmm. Uh, his last film that he made uh, before he not passed Buzz away. Not Buzz Kulik's. No, not Buzz Kulik's, but uh, definitely uh, Steve McQueen's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Dr. Caligari, uh, 1989. Uh, directed by Stephen Saidian. 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 Uh, yep. Yeah, it's always fun to say his name. Um, kind of a cult movie director, if there ever was one, and um, didn't make a whole lot of stuff. Made some very interesting pornography, and uh, we'll talk about that uh, when we review the film. But it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a strange trip that one. So <laughs> we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, 
that's about that's about all we got to say here in the intro. Uh, well, outside of what we've been watching, so I'll see. Get into that, and what have you been watching, Todd? A uh, little of this, a little of that. Um, I got uh, another Crimean, in the Forger of London. London, excuse me, uh, directed by Harold Reinel. Uh, this one is uh, a lot more straightforward than uh, the other uh, creamies that I've watched so far. Um, there's in this one, it's nothing very lurid. It's nothing really uh, salacious or anything like that. There's no large, overly dramatic villains or anything like that. Uh, although we do get like a, a, a Charlie's Angels sort of villain, uh, where you know we hear his voice from behind a two-way mirror. Um, it's interesting that uh, Karen Dorr uh, kind of does a lot of the heavy lifting here. Uh, and that's surprising, you know, for a genre and at a time when, um, these sorts of things tended to be much more male centric. So, um, that was kind of, uh, that was kind of neat. Uh, but you know, I mean the movie, it's, it's well-made, uh, as these things did tend to be, I mean, and it's entertaining enough, but, um, it, it does run a bit toward the dull side for me. And in my opinion, it's not really a standout of the, uh, of the subgenre, uh, so uh, there was that, and then I slogged my way through uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League in small increments. Um, no, yeah. and uh, I, I gotta say, I, I, I largely agree with the with a lot of what you were saying last week. I, I do think it's much much better in the front half. Um, I'm very happy that I never watched the uh, the original. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's un- unfortunately, I think that that's you know a lot of what they brought in on the last two hours of this thing mm. is still a lot of the stuff that was in the uh, was in the original one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just kind of you know changed around a little bit or re redubbed or what have you. Um, Remixed but, and remastered. Yeah. yeah right. Um, I, I noticed that, uh, Batman is, is downright upbeat, uh, in this thing, which is just, it's bizarre to me. Um, <laughs> uh. and, and, you know, so I think that I like that they, that it, it took its time. I like that it, you know, kind of gave just about every character as much development as it possibly could. Uh, and I like that. And I like that a lot, actually. It took me a little bit to get into the into this in the first place mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh i'd say a good half hour to 45 minutes yeah uh for me to finally kind of settle in with it but once i did that i really found myself liking it yeah um i like what they did with um with steppenwolf as a character mm-hmm. yeah. uh, although i still think that he's ridiculously designed <laughs> and that armor that he wears is fucking stew who hooped could there be um, a more Zack snyder costume in the creation there of- really couldn't <laughs> i mean that thing is I mean, you want to talk about impractical impracticabilities yeah that's work there we go um it's easy for you to say I mean, no uh but uh yeah it's, it's just ridiculous but you know i like that they they did give him they did expand him out a little bit um i also like that uh you know, I, I well, I started to notice more uh, the uh, Ray Choi uh, character, who of course would become the Adam or one of the Adams, not uh, Ray Palmer. Um, and uh, yeah, that was nice. And I even kind of uh, warmed up a little bit to Ezra Miller's Flash uh, a little bit more. Not a ton. I still think he's miscast, but you know, 
Um, I like that they they kind of uh, you know gave him a bit more to do than just be uh, a really fast uh, smart Alec. Um, I still think that uh, Cyborg is you know not great. Uh, I still think he looks like garbage. But then again, I mean this thing is so loaded with CG, it's not even funny. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I'm surprised the the you know the the movie doesn't have to buffer just to you know finish updating the the graphics in this fucking thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was good. Uh, I liked it. Um, I, I, I don't think it's great, but I, it's definitely a vast improvement on the, uh, the theatrical cut. Um, and then, but then there's this, uh, there's this epilogue, uh, that they have in this thing that goes on like too long for sure. There's about 10 epilogues at the end of this thing. Um, and there's an appearance in this epilogue that just kind of stank. Uh, and if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, or maybe you don't, maybe you disagree. I don't know. Um, but, uh, it, you know, if, but it also feels like we've been here already for like two movies ago, uh, with the, uh, the epilogue of this thing. Um, and it also just feels kind of like a, a waste of time because I, you know, I, I, I'm kind of uncertain that, uh, that Warner Brothers is going to invest anything into uh, into continuing on uh, down this road in this way uh, uh, with this guy and allowing him this kind of freedom. Yeah, uh, I just kind of don't think they're going to see this how every single time they come up to bat, they have to fucking dick around with stuff to the point of just ruining it. Um, but, you know, hey, what do I know? Uh, so yeah, there was that, um, it's worth a watch. I'll say that, but I mean, yeah, I mean, four hours is just, it's ridiculous amount of time. Uh, it definitely has to get broken up. Uh, Lord of the Rings, this ain't, yeah. but, uh, you know, what are you going to do? Best way to watch um, it. Yeah. Best way to watch is chapters, I think. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. Moved on from that and watched a movie called Archive, uh, from last year, directed and written by Gavin Rothery. I hope, um, not uh, mispronouncing that. Uh, and this one is, this is another uh, story about AI and, you know, what is humanity versus being alive and, you know, about identity and all these sort of things. Uh, like uh, Ex Machina and Frankenstein and Blade Runner and so on. And actually, uh, this movie very, very, very much lives in uh, uh, Blade Runner's uh, shadow. Um, but I've always found it interesting how much of uh, serious uh, science fiction tends to focus on loneliness. Uh, and this film is very much the same in that regard. And I have to wonder, uh, if that's a condition of the creators of this stuff, or if that's more something of the human condition, or maybe a little bit of both. Um, and yeah, yeah I mean, it that's might, just one of the things that always sticks out to me. Yeah. The science fiction, I think, uh, by its nature can be misanthropic. <laughs> yeah 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 well but it's, it's always it's always just like people in like vast expanses you know kind of navel gazing and being like oh what am i oh, what are we doing here oh. um yeah but uh well i mean not quite that broad but obviously <laughs> but uh but yeah i mean that just tends to be the thing uh it's a major theme i think um this movie it looks nice and slick uh and with a little bit of uh of shine and a whole lot of uh, industrialization in it uh, the movie actually it, it takes place in a wilderness compound that would give a uh, a Bond villain uh, a massive erection, uh, and it is very very ambitious on a very small budget, which is always a draw for me. Um, 
the uh, the score is you know part like somber tones, part synth waves, so no real shocks on that end. Um, and uh, I think that's because of the movie's uh, quasi clinical approach. Uh, this thing tends to rely very heavily on the lead played by uh, Theo James. Um, and I got to say that he's really, uh, he's competent, uh, but never really more than that. Um, and this, you know, makes the watch, uh, a bit of an effort, uh, that needs to be supported by its ideas and how they develop. Um, I mean, honestly, I, I felt more for the robots in this thing. Um, but I also think that that's part of what, uh, Rothery wanted. Um, the, the structure of the movie is in a bit of a pattern. We get like, you know, some maintenance slash tech work. We get a little bit of plot drama, whether it's internal or external. And then we get some, some memories or nostalgia. And then this just kind of repeats, uh, and fair enough, I suppose. But, you know, I, I just found it to be very noticeable. Um, I won't reveal anything about where the movie goes. Uh, but this was, uh, this was decent it's not really surprising it's not really revelatory i mean uh it does have a little bit of a sting in its tail but uh that to me felt contrived and it doesn't really hold up under scrutiny in my opinion um but the movie it's uh, it's well made uh well well made enough and it's uh, it's pretty interesting so uh give it credit for that um so there you have it. And then I jumped over and did a rewatch of a little movie called Creep Show. Mm. Um, and I, uh, I watched it with the, uh, the Romero Savini commentary, uh, who I know you love. Um, and I mean, yeah, I still, uh, adore this movie. Uh, it gets everything about it just about perfect. Uh, another thing is, you know, uh, one of the things, and one of the things that really stands out in Blu-ray, uh, is just how juicy this movie is with the uh, the special effects uh, and the uh, the sound effects and everything is just it's so visceral. Um, this thing is uh, that I just I love it. I love it the bits. Uh, I mean, the the crate is my favorite um, segment of the whole thing. Yeah. Um, personally but uh, but i mean all of them are great uh you know of course for everything from you know the lonesome death of geordie Verrill to uh they're creeping up on you and uh, you know that was the other one is you know you really started getting the uh the skeeves watching the uh, the eg marshall segment there at the end um there's really not much more that i can i can say about this thing that hasn't been said already and yeah, it's just uh it is a classic for a reason and certainly one of uh romero's best and definitely uh some of king's best work uh and particularly as an actor uh, funny enough. Yeah. Um, so there you have it. Uh, and then I moved on to something very, very light. Uh, the Kennel murder case. This was 1933. And this is uh, William Powell uh, playing Philo Vance, I think, for the last time. Uh, and just before his more you know famous tenure as, uh, as Nick Charles. Uh, and this is directed by who someone who I think is one of the great unheralded directors of the golden age, Michael Curtiz, uh, even though he gave us, you know, both the adventures of Robin hood and, uh, Casablanca, just to name two. Um, he's, uh, yeah, you don't really hear his name, uh, bandied about a whole hell of a lot, unless it's among cinephiles. Also uh, Hungarian. We talked about Bela Lugosi a little while. How about it? Uh, I wonder if he, uh, I wonder if they, uh, they talked, uh, a lot 
Um, uh, never mind. I was gonna <laughs> go for a joke, but fuck it. Probably not. Uh, I'm too. I'm too tired. I really am. Um, so yeah. Uh, I mean, my love for for William Powell really kind of knows no bounds. Uh, this is a guy who was effortlessly charming on screen, uh, and even when the movies he's in don't measure up to his particular stature, they are still at least worthwhile for his presence in them. Um, and uh, I love. And I also love that you know he's one of those guys where every time that I see him talking. I always just kind of notice his teeth and I'm assuming he had dentures. Uh, but at the same time, it's just one of those things. It's just, I just am fascinated by his teeth. Uh, that's a weird thing to say this early in the morning, but Hey, what do you want? Hey, whatever, Um, whatever floats your boat, Todd. I plan on eating ham later. Mm. So there, there's, how's that for a non sequitur? Um, we also get uh, the gravel-voiced curmudgeon uh, Eugene Pallet popping up in here, uh, which is always a plus. Uh, and for those of you who uh, – he's one of those guys who as soon as you see him and particularly hear him, you'll know. Um, uh, that being said, you know this is very much a programmer, uh, kind of like a certain movie that we were talking about off uh, offline. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, it bears the sort of uh, stiffness and utility of a uh, – uh, B programmer movie, um, you know, in that it, it's capable, uh, but far from outstanding. I think it's a little over 80 minutes, roughly. Um, and it just kind of flies along with uh, all kinds of uh, little uh, melodramas while Philo is figuring out what's going on. Uh, but I love getting into these um, into these light sort of armchair detective things. Uh, and, you know, this one also centers, uh, well, it features uh, the murder of a dog, so I'm instantly invested, being a, a dog lover. Uh, but it's uh, it's an okay time waster, um, not too uh, not too shabby. Uh, there was that, and that's all that I got this week, buddy. So nice. kick it over to you. I didn't watch a whole lot. Watched a few things here and there. Um, watched uh, Flora and Ulysses with my daughter. Uh, this is the Super Squirrel uh, Disney movie that's on the Disney Plus streaming application there. Okay. Um, it's just a standard kids movie, but you can tell it's kind of like Disney kind of messing with the, you know their Marvel stuff uh, in the background a little bit and all that kind of good stuff. And you know it's very, you know, a girl whose dad and mom are separated, and her dad was a failed comic book artist and. She sees superheroes and things, and she meets this squirrel that's kind of crafty. So it's that. It's it's definitely a kids' movie. I mean, it was fun. It was very. Speaking of lighthearted fare, it's about as lighthearted as it gets. Okay. <laughs> so, but I had to say squirrel because uh, Ben Schwartz, I think, is in it. I think yeah, uh, he's the dad, and uh, he really goes out of his way to say squirrel, squirrel, <laughs> squirrel, and, you know, and it really becomes an obsession. I think the English call them squirrels, and of course, you know, here in America, we call them squirrels. <laughs> down here, down here in uh, down here in the south, they call them squirrels. You know, uh, up here in Pennsylvania, we call them appetizers. <laughs> well, now they uh, I've eaten of course the orvre. Yeah, I have uh, eaten a few squirrels in my day. Uh, <laughs> probably <laughs> some of our listeners probably just left. Hit pause. <laughs> but uh, not, it's not an ideal thing to eat. Let me let me get that out there. It's not like I go out and hunt it and eat them now. But uh, way to backstop it. Yeah, but. Uh, Growing up, my grandfather was a big fan of the squirrel meat. Uh, so there you go. Squirrels, rabbits, <laughs> you name it. Squirrels, rabbits, pigeons. I mean, hell, I ate everything. I don't know what that says about my growing up. Anyway, um, but it was it was fun. It was fun for me and her to watch it, you know. 
uh, like but i could tell you can it's, it's interesting you know even at five that she's like yeah well i'll never watch that again uh, that that's interesting to me because when i was a kid it was like everything you know i couldn't see everything enough yeah, 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 even if I knew the movie was bad, you know, I mean, I'd be like, I'm gonna watch that again. Uh, anyway, um, of course, I don't have access to as much stuff as she has either. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, the Invisible Man, 2020. Um, uh, okay. This was uh, for a lot of people. This was one of the last films they saw before the COVID crisis. Just mm-hmm. wanted, I wanted to say that out loud. The COVID crisis. Thanks. And uh, you're welcome. And uh, you not you not heard that at all over the last year. What what have I not heard? <laughs> the COVID crisis. <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> yeah. Once it, or twice. It has not been invisible. Um, <laughs> I, I enjoyed this. I enjoyed the uh, the filmmaking. I especially enjoyed the first half of it. I think it yeah. gets a little illogical and a little wacky toward the back end. Not completely illogical. At, at first, I thought there's a scene in the hallway where some things happen in the mental hospital. You've seen this, right? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Okay, so I don't, I'm not going to get into too much detail since you've seen it. You kind of know what I'm talking about, and right. those who have also seen it, they're listening. They know what I'm talking about. And I thought, well, everything's going to be fine now because that's on camera. Uh, you can see a camera in the top corner, and she'll be able to prove that you know that this is happening to her. But it pretty much just escalates from that point on, and I I was pretty impressed by that because I thought, oh, okay, well, if he clearly ignores the fact that he just filmed all that. <laughs> mm-hmm. on security cameras i'm gonna be irritated uh i don't like to apply logic to movies because i like for movies movies that exist in their own world but you know i was just i got a little logical there i got a little spocky and uh they call me spocky on well, the some, some things yeah some things you just some things just instantly stand out to you yeah and security- I mean, there's a, i mean that yeah i mean that's the whole suspension of disbelief thing right i mean you know we go there to do one thing but i mean there's just something you can't help yes um but I did enjoy it um, as a metaphor for um, uh, obviously battered women and the psychological damage that causes. And, mm-hmm. and uh, well, not so much a metaphor. I mean, it's right there on the tin. But it's it's a it's an interesting take on the Invisible Man kind of mythology. Mm-hmm. What's always interesting to me about the Invisible Man stuff is outside of the original Universal pitches, as they used to call them back in the day there, buddy. Um, is the I guess it's the power thing, but it seems like a lot of directors tend to go for the sexual angle. Yeah, well, because I mean that's I mean come on that's yeah, yeah. every every guy every single red blooded guy out there if you said to him hey if you were invisible what would you do come on yeah there's a lot of darkness there for a lot of uh and it's it's a it's a enticing and dark um. Uh, power to have i mean if you yeah. were not be seen but i liked how this one i thought it was going to be a little heavier on that but i liked how it was subtle in the beginning uh and i like the use of a i like the use of a cell phone and a few other things and there is a twist in the story that um i kind of saw coming uh definitely by the time it got to the point to where the twist was getting ready to happen i was like oh wait a minute i know what's going on here Mm-hmm. And sure enough, that's what was happening. Uh, but it is interesting, and I, I think that's the important thing. It's a it's a modern horror film that you know makes you think a little bit. Like it, it'd be easy just to make this a straight up thriller. The movie is yeah. over long. Uh, it is. It is. But I really like the filmmaking in the beginning. I like the pans to empty hallways and empty doorways. 
Yeah, it does a lot with absolutely nothing. Yeah, and that creates a level of tension. Maybe not for everybody, but certainly for me. It creates a level of tension that uh, is pretty impressive. Um, uh, at least, you know, like I said, in those first 45 to... I mean, that first hour is really... I mean, it's pretty pretty damn solid. Up until that twist reveal. I mean, this movie is really... It's really pumping on all cylinders for me. After the reveal, it, it kind of changes a little bit. It kind of turns into a little bit more of a, a standard kind of strange thing. And, mm-hmm. and I liked it. I liked the design of the... Well, I don't want to give this away because folks might not have seen it, but... There's a, a suit that I like the design of. Anyway, mm-hmm. I did, I'll just say that I had a really good time with it, and uh, bravo to Lee Winnell to make it uh, to turn this into something. It's really a shame that Universal uh, can't. It's the same thing with Warner and DC, but Universal struggles too with their properties uh, in trying to make them for everybody. They sometimes get in their way, but I think in this one they they did the right thing and they pretty much gave uh, Lee Winnell uh, the. Uh, the green light to just do what he wanted to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's when these, that's when these guys get it right. Mm. Yeah. I mean, if, if I don't know if anybody's actually watching up there in the, uh, the upper floors, no, uh, no, they're not. <laughs> they never, um, will. they never will, <laughs> which is, which astounds me because it's like, dude, you get your best reactions, your best, everything when you yeah. just, you know, hire good talent and let them go. I mean, how do you not get that? How do yeah. you not put the two and two together? Well, the problem is, is that the risk reward. Sometimes when they do get involved and they do throw a bunch of coin at something, and then it, boom, it hits, and that reward is so fat. They think at that point, you know, the corporate guys. They think at that point, yeah, man, we know what we're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. Look at us. We spent two hundred million on this, and we made one point eight billion. And of course, uh-huh. it makes no sense because that might be the you know that's one out of every who knows four hundred movies. Yep. Um, but you know, again, the risk reward is there. So, yeah. but I mean, they just, uh, I know, never mind. I know I, I don't run a studio. So what the fuck do I know? Yeah. But I mean, it just, it's, it's such, it's just counterintuitive stuff that goes on it is. there. Well, I mean, thinking, I don't get the, it. The people who run studios, they're not interested in telling stories. They're interested in making money. Well, and I get that, but I mean, you would almost think to yourself that it would be smarter to take that, you know, 200 million and split it up into 10 movies, which could net you a bigger profit if, you know, they were actually of a certain quality rather than one movie that you're putting all your, that you're going all in on. Yeah. I mean, doesn't that make more sense? Well, it does to me and you. That way you can, (laughs) that way you can kind of amortize out any losses on like a, a, you know, if one of them happens to be a turkey or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it does to me and you. Yeah, it does to me and you. Uh, Unfortunately, it does not to everybody. Um, And of course, you know that's why I don't live in a fucking mansion this year. And then that's you know that gets into even deeper conversation when you talk about the mid tier movie, right? Because the mid tier movie doesn't really exist much anymore. So, well, it's just like the middle. Oh, okay, I was going to go there. Never mind. Yeah, but it's just like yeah, like the middle class. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) That's exactly the same uh, ideology. It's all or nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I really enjoyed the Invisible Man uh, 2020. Really good. Film. Yeah, no, it was it was good. It definitely has uh, it definitely has its share of um, of issues. I wasn't in love with it, uh, but I did like some of the things that it did, mm-hmm. uh, and I did like the, I did like how it ended, how it uh, kind of turned it all around at the end. Although you you do see it coming from a mile away. You do, you do. Um, and then I finished up with the, uh, the last blockbuster. This is obviously a documentary that's kind of, what was that? The making the rounds on the, uh, the, uh, streaming, uh, thing now uh, as well. You know, this is fine. It's totally fine. 
I enjoyed the lady that ran the last blockbuster. I, I liked her, and she seemed so sunny and effervescent and and happy to be working there and stuff. And, of course, you know, this doesn't get into the world I really wanted to get into, which is, I guess, the darker side of me and that Blockbuster pretty much destroyed every independent video store that ever was. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I spent a lot of money at Blockbuster. Um, mm-hmm. I'd be lying if I told you otherwise, right? Yeah. Uh, I think anybody that loves movies uh, spent a lot of time uh, renting movies from Blockbuster because they became the only game in town. And then, of course, you know, you get into the whole world of Blockbuster was a family a themed video store and some films um if you were lucky and the person that ran the blockbuster would actually purchase stuff like henry portrait of a serial killer and things like that um but if you were unlucky um uh, most of the franchises didn't have stuff like that you had to go somewhere else to find that kind of stuff right so uh i was lucky uh, i had one that was a uh, very middle of the road and all the blockbuster movies and some straight-to-video trash, obviously, but nothing too crazy. And then we had another one that was closer to downtown that would just fucking stock everything. And uh, that was the one that I would go to more often because that's how I saw Henry and a few other films. Uh, that uh, That's how I saw Beyond the Darkness. Yeah. Did you, did you really? Through Blockbuster? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> like, yeah, I, 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 I can think of two distinct Blockbusters I went to. One of them would have that, and the other one would not touch that with a 10-foot pole. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they knew what the fuck it was. No. No. I think at that point it was called Buried Alive. Well, see, so there's the other thing. So Blockbuster was a chain, so you had people getting out of high school or or in high school working in these places. Sure. And you had movie lovers, and then you had people who didn't give a crap, and then that's fine. I mean, that's 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 you're you're working. You're just you know you're doing a job. So some people that are working there, they don't care. They don't care about what films or what, you know, and, and I think what what we all miss, and I would, I'm speaking for you here, but I'm speaking for a lot of uh, film lovers. I think what we all miss about the mom and pop shops was typically there was a guy running the mom and pop shop who loved movies as much as you did. Mm-hmm. And you'd go in there, and uh, I remember I used to rent from this one mom and pop shop that used to be in an old Mexican restaurant, and I can't remember the name of it to save the life of me, which is kind of sad, but... I go in there and they had these little round tags hung on nails in front of the videos. Okay, I go in there and you to rent the movie. The, if the little round tag was hanging there, you could just pull the tag off and take it up front and get your, get your tape, go home, have a good time. And I remember that distinctly. These that he hand put all these nails on these shelves, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of hand, <laughs> you know, nails everywhere. And I remember thinking this would be a great place for a horror movie because you could come in here and just rake people across these nails and, <laughs> and all that stuff. And but he, but every time I would come in because he knew what we would rent because he was this the neighborhood video rental guy. Okay, mm-hmm. he would know what we would rent. The me and my buddy, we'd ride our bikes up there. And of course, this is also a time when you could rent, just like you could go to the movies, uh, rated our movies, and you didn't get carded or anything. We'd go in there, and he'd be like, oh, he goes, here, here comes the cannibal kids. I got some new cannibal stuff, and or I got some new, you know, werewolf stuff. Or, and he'd uh, talk about those things, and, and he watched. It seemed like he saw everything, and uh, that was also fascinating to us. It's like, So there was a moment when I was really young, I guess uh, 12, 13, 14 years old, where I thought, man, when I grow up, I want to run a video store, man, because talk about the life. He had, he had this little TV behind the, the counter. And he would watch movies while people were renting movies. And, of course, he would watch totally inappropriate stuff. 
<laughs> he wasn't watching pornography, although he did have that section too, the saloon doors or the, the beads. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> one practically point, Greg Brady's dead walking yeah, in there. Yeah, I think, I think at one point he did have the saloon doors and the beads, so he, he double-dipped. <laughs> but, um, you know, we'd be walking around renting movies, and he's watching, like, some horror film, and people are getting, you know, mutilated completely, and there's, like, grandmas in there and kids in there, way too young to be seeing that kind of stuff, and it's just like... It's funny the stuff we accepted then that we could not accept now. Uh, and what's even more weird is about 15 years ago, 15 to somewhere between 15 and 18 years ago, my mother actually ended up uh, when my dad passed away. She didn't. She was. She had a lot of free time, uh, and she was dealing with grief and everything else. So she she worked in a video store that was down the corner from the video store that we used to rent in. That ended up being another family-owned video store in the era of. There were still some blockbusters around stuff, but it was clear they were going out. They were going out of style. This was still in the era of the 56K modem. So they were still existing, but people just didn't really go to them that much anymore. And she went to this family owned uh, shop and this guy bought nothing but pornography. And uh, I used to tease my mom because I'd go in there and she'd be like, well, they got this and this. I don't know if you like this. And we got about five extra copies of this. If you want the, I can see if he'll give you this. And this is before Blu-ray. This is all DVD. And uh, so I'd go in there sometimes to get some free movies and stuff. But she would constantly, every time I'd go in there, she would constantly be unboxing porn. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to tease her. I used to be like, did you ever think that you'd spend, uh, you know, the extra time in your life, you know, <laughs> unboxing so much pornography? And she's like, no, I didn't. She goes, I didn't know this much pornography existed. And I'm like, oh, boy. Yeah. I, I wish I could say the same, Mom. Mm. But, uh, yeah, a lot of pornography, um, which uh, he would then turn around and sell for a nice fat profit. So, and guess what sold the most? Yeah, you're right. Superheroes. Yes, superhero movies. That's right. Of the triple X parody variety. Mm, those are the best. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's about it. Uh, I didn't watch much else. Um, I've been going back through the Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman long way uh, uh, documentaries. I really enjoy those uh, where they, you know, get on motorcycles and they either ride around the world or they ride uh, certain places and stuff. I like the adventure aspects of those and the cultural aspects of those. They're on Apple TV. I did watch the premiere animated episode of Invincible, Robert Kirkman's Invincible, on Amazon. Oh yeah, yeah, I saw that that had uh, that had popped up. Uh, and I, I find it funny. It's clear that a lot of people have not ever read the Invincible comic uh, that are watching it right now. On what social media, <laughs> I know <laughs> it's like everybody read Walking Dead, and and honestly, <laughs> I'm gonna here's a hot take: Invincible is a better comic than Walking Dead. I'm just gonna say it out loud. Okay, um, I never read Walking Dead at all, so I yeah, I I I, I kind of liked the first season, and then I didn't like the second season, and I said, you know what, I'm done with this. Yeah, yeah, no, the TV show's a totally different uh, beast. I liked aspects of the second season, but uh, mostly just the Joe Barenthal aspects of it. Yeah, it lost me, I think, after like the fourth episode. I was like, yeah, fuck this thing. Uh, It's the acting is woof. Woof. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. Uh, Anyway, neither here nor there, Uh, but the Invincible stuff, I I, I do think it's funny that uh, folks are watching it, and I think they think it's one thing, and then when they find out what it really is, they're kind of like, whoa, hello. (laughs) So here's what I'll say about Invincible. Um, if you think the boys is pretty hardcore, 
um, you're in for a surprise. Because uh, <laughs> the Invincible Animated Show might be more hardcore than the Amazon Boys Show. <laughs> nice. So uh, be prepared. Uh, don't take your kids into it and expect them to see a happy-go-lucky superhero TV show. Because it, yeah, it's not, not so that. Much. It's not that. Mm-mm. It's not that. But, of course, people will because it says, you know, 18 plus on there for sexual content and hard violence and language and everything else. And people will just be like, hey, come here, kid. This is animated. I don't know what impression that, impression that was. That was a good one, though, whatever it was. It's <laughs> some huckster from. <laughs> we should develop this. <laughs> uh, we're the next Barney Fife and Andy Griffin. Andy we Taylor. massage that bit. <laughs> I was massaging my bit right before we started the show. <laughs> Zing. <laughs> yeah. Hey, kid, come here. You got to nip it in the bud, Andy. <laughs> nip it in the bud. All right. <laughs> we are going to take a uh, short break, and we're going to come back and discuss The Hunter from 1980. We'll be back right after this. country punk rock there some uh drive-by truckers if you've been listening to the show for as long as we've existed you know i'm a big fan of the drive-by truckers so good stuff i like that uh, little jab at paul newman in there steve mcqueen would have liked that as well (laughs) (laughs) he he loved to give old newman a hard time uh those two anyway um the hunter yeah man 1980 so I was talking with Todd off the air before we started recording this one, and uh, uh, obviously this is a film that I saw a lot uh, growing up, and I think Todd saw it quite a bit too, maybe. I saw it a few times. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we are the generation uh, that got cable TV, and uh, there was a lot of films that they would show frequently on cable TV, and it seemed like this one, in the early 80s it seemed like this one was around quite a bit um i i know that i saw it quite a bit that way let's put it that way so so uh this well i think it also helps that you gravitated more towards uh mr mcqueen's yeah well that's filmography prob- yeah that's probably true too i you know like my mom and dad like tough guy movies uh so that's why i watched a lot of charles bronson steve mcqueen you know even paul newman to some degree but a lot of those movie star type you know vehicles i watched quite a bit growing up so but yeah i did gravitate towards steve mcqueen uh the lyrics in that song you just heard are kind of reason why it's because it's always kind of ridiculous you know never have an empty bottle never have an empty bed 
you know, all the coolness that Steve McQueen kind of carried, um, whether they were real or not. I mean, because I've seen interviews with Steve McQueen. And I've said this on the show before. He seemed like a bit of a goober, but <laughs> he worked on the screen and uh, he had that. Uh, he's actually him and Bronson and there's a few other actors. I've never been able to figure it out why they work on the screen so much because they don't do a whole lot. They don't do a whole lot. Uh, although McQueen does quite a bit in this, he does uh, quite a bit of stunt work in this. Not a lot. You can definitely tell when the stunt man shows up, and there's some impressive stunts in this movie. I had forgotten that, but mm-hmm. um, that train sequence is pretty fucking uh, pretty mm-hmm. cool, uh, to say the least. I don't want to be that stunt guy, um, but um, you, you can tell on some of the stuff from the guy getting when Steve McQueen's getting thrown around that it's actually Steve McQueen, which is pretty impressive considering at this point uh, he knew that. Uh, he was really ill. Yeah, uh, yeah. Really ill. Uh, okay, so Steve McQueen's The Hunter, 1980, Buzz Kulik directed. Peter Himes working on the screenplay here a little bit. Mm-hmm. Ted Layton. Bounty hunter Ralph Papa Thorson is receiving death threats from a criminal he helped put away uh, while his girlfriend is about to give birth, an event he isn't looking forward to. Uh, he doesn't want to grow up. So this is, it feels like in a weird way, very Steve McQueen-esque material. So... I don't know how many times you've seen this. I don't know when's the last time you'd seen this. Uh, but let's get into it. Totter. All righty. Uh, well, last time that I saw this was probably in the mid-90s. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, it was it was something that I caught a few times which is uh, almost, which on, is on the cable. Much almost, like you. almost 30 years ago in the mid-90s. Yeah. So let's not even talk yeah. about it, man. Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's funny that you picked up Buzz Kulik, uh, film because there was one that I recently took notice of that I was thinking of programming as well. <laughs> uh, I won't mention the name of it. Well, he's uh, a, he's a very GGTMC director in a lot of he ways. He is. He is. Yeah. Uh, well, he was also, he was also primarily a TV director. I mean, most noteworthy work of his was arguably Brian's song. Uh, yeah. Uh, that most I'd people say would so. know. I'd say so. Yeah. Um, but of, yeah, no, it's just, a lot of TV I, I found that funny. Group. Yeah. A lot of TV movies and stuff, stuff we probably grew up watching but bad ronald is another one that uh yeah yeah people may know but uh there's a there's a burt movie in there and yep there is and there's some other stuff there's a there's a uh, bronson movie in there so mm-hmm. so yeah he got around he got around and plus he yeah. had a great name yeah he did and uh he i'm sure he will reappear on the show <laughs> oh i would imagine <laughs> yes. uh so uh according to christopher Keene on whose novel this movie is based uh, the real Papa Thorson is kind of like a true Renaissance man, uh, because this is based on an actual person. Yeah. Um, he is quote unquote, a church Bishop, master bridge champion, renowned astrologer, criminology alumnus of the university of California, Berkeley, child nutritionist and aficionado <laughs> of classical music. Uh, and you know, all of this kind of comes across in the movie uh though i think that uh, mcqueen's personality overshadows aspects of that yeah uh you know it's it's still waters run deep and all that sort of thing but yeah. you know that also makes it difficult to make the that depth apparent sometimes which i guess is part of the point but still i don't know which uh which uh, ch- makes me chuckle more the child nutritionist or the uh there was something else you said in there and i told this, this should tell you a lot about my age and everything i totally blanked on but uh yeah yeah he uh I, th- I think in the movie, uh, they bring in cars and toys because that's stuff that Steve McQueen loved. Yeah, yeah. He yeah, loved yeah. Uh, he loved to tinker with classic toys, and he loved uh, obviously he loved cars. 
Yes. Actually, indeed. it's probably one of the most brilliant things about the movie, in my opinion, is that Steve McQueen's playing against type, what he's known for, which is being a car guy. Fast and, car. Yeah, being a car and kind of a big boy toy kind of guy. Yep. In this, he's kind of a klutz. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, that's kind of a brilliant uh, little move that they do is that, you know, he only wants to, uh, this running joke that he, he, not only can he not drive well, but he's even worse with like a new vehicle. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you have to think there's a bit of an inside joke with the fact that the new vehicle is a, uh, you know, a car that's kind of synonymous with Burt Reynolds. Yeah. 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 You kind of got, you do have to kind of, uh, draw some, uh, who, some lines there. Who at this point, uh, when McQueen's making this movie, I mean, Burt Reynolds is the biggest star in the world probably, right? Close to it. Uh, 80. Oh my God. Yeah. Pretty close yeah, to it. Yeah. He was on top of the heap. Yeah. So I'd, um, I'd imagine there's a little bit of, you know, inside jokes there by putting the, uh, the, uh, golden black Trans Am in there. Yeah. 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 Um, but, uh, okay. So yeah, uh, with, uh, the movie here and, and Papa Thorson, you know, I think that we do get to see the, the empathetic side of him, mm-hmm. uh, with the, the way that, you know, Keen describes him, the, the way that he treats, uh, the, the LeVar Burton character and all the, the ex cons and so on that he lets crash in his house and hang out. Um, but uh, you know, this is not, I don't think in any way, shape or form really an intellectual movie. So the more intellectual aspects of the, uh, Thorson as a person are not really emphasized. Right. Um, in that respect, I also think that Thorson is very much a man out of time, obviously, you know, with the toys and the cars and all that, mm-hmm. uh, and combined with the, uh, the grizzled old man aspect of McQueen, uh, himself, I, that is something that is appealing to me. Uh, McQueen himself was a man out of time, like literally out of time. Uh, as this was his last picture, obviously before his, uh, his death from mesothelioma the same year that this was released. Um, and he, uh, he claims that, um, well, he believes that, uh, he got it while, um, from stripping, uh, asbestos in, uh, in ships in, when he was working in the Navy, I believe. Yeah. Uh, I may be incorrect about that. Um, you are correct about that. I mean, that's, that's the high probability where he, uh. Where, sure. it, where it began for him and stuff but of course he was a lifelong smoker as well and yeah that didn't help anything. and you know he 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 was known to dabble in the drugs and the alcohol as well he was not yeah. uh he was not a golden boy to sort of he speak. was not a prude no. let's say no so um but, but the, the, uh, the uh, asbestos the, probably did not help at all no it never does uh you gotta wet that shit down mm. um so the Thorson character really fits McQueen uh, in that, you know, he's especially the way that McQueen plays him. He's very, he's very laconic. He's very, you know, and old and done with the, with the bullshit. Uh, but he's also, uh, uh, he's also a pure professional uh, and he knows the job that he does and the people that it involves backwards and forwards. Uh, you know, he's the kind of guy, he goes where he has to go. He does what he has to do and he doesn't give a shit, you know, uh, that anyone, of what anyone has to say about um, how he does it. Uh, well, I find there's that. I find it interesting uh, watching it this time, and again, I hadn't seen it in some time either. But I found, and again, the reason why I picked it is well, not only because it's a Stephen Queen movie, but also uh, I had just bought it not too long ago, and so I just kind of wanted to revisit it. But I find it interesting that he's so oblivious sometimes, <laughs> or he plays up the obliviousness. Uh, uh, you know, like the beginning where he's, you know, he's riding through a quote unquote bad end of town, which yeah. nowadays you got to watch how you say that because he's in a African American part of town, but it's a, it's a poverty stricken part of town. Uh, and he's just oblivious to the fact that he's bumping into cars. Uh, or is he, 
He, he see. Well, that, that's kind of the thing, right? Is that, you know, you just get that kind of thing where you're just like, I really don't give a fuck what you guys have to th- say yeah. or think or do or anything. I'm yeah. doing my thing, and if you don't like it, tough shit. He has no fear. He's almost uh, he's almost uh, stupid, but at the same time, he knows what he's doing. It's a very interesting yeah. performance from him. Well, he's, yeah, he's, well, like I said, I mean, he's very much, yeah, he's very much a, uh, you know, dinosaur character in a lot of ways. Like I said, yeah. man out of time. Yeah. Um, I think that this movie may have been in the beginning of uh, LeVar Burton and reading Rainbow with him reading the uh, the Bounty Hunter Law in the car. Yeah. Um, but uh, I also think that he he makes a very nice foil to McQueen at least to be, at the beginning there, um, and he you know he gives as good as he gets in the Smartass Awards. Oh yeah. Um, now to this day, uh, the only scene that I ever remember from every time that I watch this entire movie is the uh, the beanbag gut shot. <laughs> uh, no matter how many times I see it, yeah. <laughs> partly because of the the Hal Needham esqueness of the the scene, oh yeah, and partly because of the actual beanbag gut shot, which when I was a kid was totally foreign to me, oh yeah, and I would just sit there and I was like, what the fuck just happened? Yeah, this um, is a but, this is an early prototype stun gun, so they would exactly, actually yeah they would actually use gunpowder and uh, a beanbag and some type of projectile behind the beanbag, right, I think, and you would pump it and you'd hit it and it would shoot it out and uh, it would stun you because it would knock you out. Uh, it would, yeah, it would knock the breath out of you. From sheer pressure, whereas, you know, eventually they went yep. to electricity. But mm-hmm. um, it is interesting, uh, and it is one of the most memorable scenes in the movie too. Oh, yeah, from it, Fort it New- really is. So, so that's the thing about this movie. I think what, what this movie, this movie is not, and we talked about this a little bit before we started reviewing the film, but I think you agree. This film isn't, as a cohesive piece, it's not great. Not so much, no. But it has some of my favorite Steve McQueen scenes in it. Um, I like that scene a lot with the giant person. Of course, it also helps mm-hmm. that Ben Johnson's at the front end of that scene and the back end of that scene. Yeah, yeah. That helps. But I like that scene because I like Steve McQueen getting on the ground playing with the train. Uh, I like his kind of, uh, you know, happiness to see a toy like that. seems like something he would really be into as a real person too. And of course there's that very memorable beanbag shot you were just talking about. And, and then there's a train sequence that's really cool. And I think there might be one other sequence that obviously is so great. I cannot forget it, uh, right? Because you know, I can't remember it right now, but <laughs> those sequences are really good. Unfortunately, the movie that's built around it is very middle of the road. Uh, I would agree with you on that. Yeah. Um, those two or three action scenes are the reason to watch the movie essentially, but anything else is kind of like, uh, well, just depends on your love of Steve McQueen, really. It really does. So, okay, let's get to that then McQueen himself. And I'm sure that we've talked about this at some point or another, uh, has never really been a huge draw for me uh-huh, uh-huh. um i'm certainly not in the in the same camp as you on him 100 percent. i mean i've never disliked him uh in fact there are some movies and performances of his that i absolutely adore uh but there is a a granite quality to him in his look and in his demeanor that i've never gravitated to and mm-hmm. and this for me um is reflected in the in the thorson character here and his relationship with his girlfriend uh-huh. um because you know he's nervous about the impending baby clearly but he does love Dottie and it brings out his dinosaur aspects especially later on you know her taking pretty much all of his flaws and is like um, 
his more um, uh, curmudgeonly uh, fast. It's like water off a duck's ass, uh, which makes the relationship work on screen. Uh-huh. I mean, of course, there has to be some tension, but I think it all flows organically. But getting back to McQueen himself, uh, I, I just I think that he's he's absolutely uh, the sort of guy who or adult, I should say, that I grew up around. Mm. Uh, my, you know, in my childhood. Yeah. So, so I just, I don't know. It's not that, it's not that I, it's not that I dislike him. It's just that I'm just like, yeah, I've been there, done that. Okay. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. 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 All right. Whatever. I can understand. Um, that. I can understand that. That makes sense to me. I mean, uh, I mean this, this is the kind of guy, this is the kind of guy who, you know, when, when I used to, uh, when I used to go out with my dad, when he was, uh, you know, working, uh, doing his, uh, service work around the area, you know, he would go and sit in a fucking, in a coffee place or in a donut place for like an hour. And all these guys would just sit there drinking, uh, drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes. Oh yeah. And this is the, in Steve McQueen is the kind of guy who, you know, would show up there. Yeah. You yeah, know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I totally so know what you I, mean. It's, so I, so I have like, there's a certain amount of, there's, there is a certain amount of nostalgia to him, but at the same time, it's certain, it's a certain thing where it's like, I know you, you know, I got your number. Yeah. 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 Kind of thing. I can understand um, that. I can understand that. Now, I think for me, uh, I think the, my fascination with him comes from the fact that he, if you look at Steve McQueen's career, there's very little acting oh, uh, yeah. going, yeah. going it's very on. Much, it's but, very much Steve. But it, but it's also what fascinates me is that why, because anybody could do, well, not anybody. I, I shouldn't say that because obviously it's not, not anybody can do it. But his level of, as he would call it, reactionary acting. Right. And that acting is all in the reactions. It's not in the, you know, kind of being proactive. It's all in reacting. Is It's a fascinating way to act. And I don't think anybody, just anybody can do that. Uh, I think it takes a special type of charisma that I don't, for the life of me, I don't understand. And I'll never understand uh, how it works. Because... Acting to me seems like work. It seems like you got to come up with things, you got to do things, you got to be able to speak clearly and stuff. But there's a lot of times yeah. if you watch a Steve McQueen performance where he never even gets a word out. Like he'll start to talk and then he'll stop and just do something with his eyes or something with his mouth or something like that and you're like, "Well, that works. How do, how does that well, work?" Well, because yeah, well because it, there's a certain there's a certain level of honesty in that because yeah. you know, people don't really talk in complete yeah. sentences i think when they I, don't really you know people do stop when they when before yeah. they say something that right. they you know i think you know I, I read i've read biographies on him and i think one of the more fascinating things about him is he would go through scripts and he'd be like well i don't need to say that i don't need to say that i don't i don't need to say that people should be able to figure that out i shouldn't be able to have to say that and he cut out tons of dialogue and uh he tell that's directors, an odd thing for an actor yeah and he'd tell uh, directors all the time and and people who wrote movies and stuff he'd be like look you don't need to say that all you gotta do is look at the camera just just point the camera at me and i'll tell you everything you need to know by just looking at my face and right, i thought right. wow i thought wow that's that's bold and strange and how did he make a career out of that <laughs> you know and then i i go back and look at his films and steve mcqueen didn't make a whole lot of movies i mean i think you know we uh we forget. I mean, he probably made more than we think of off the top of our head. But if you go back and look at his early work where he's pumping out a lot of dialogue, there's no charm there. Uh, I'm, I'm telling you right now, I went back and watched an old uh, Jackie Gleason, Steve McQueen film. And there's uh, there's a lot of dialogue between the two of them. And as much as I love Jackie Gleason and Steve McQueen, it it comes off dry. 
of course, it doesn't help that it's an older film and, you know, it's very dialogue heavy. But then when I go back and look at the quote unquote Steve McQueen movies, and this is very similar to like a Charles Bronson type of character or type Mm -hmm. of uh, actor arc, however you want to say it. Um, the once they find the thing that they're good at, they're gonna you know either run it in the ground. Now I know I know Steve McQueen tried to do some other stuff. If you look at his career, he tried to do some dramatic acting because he never really liked it. The critics, some critics wouldn't didn't care for the way he acted. They wanted more of you know. By the time the seventies hit, you got people like Marlon Brando, you got James Caan, you know, you got yeah. people like that. Although I would argue that James Caan and Thief is channeling Steve McQueen very hard. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you could totally see Steve McQueen in the Thief movie, uh, if you think about it. But I think once he realized that he didn't have to say a lot of dialogue and that he could get away with it, and I think he realizes that right around right around the bullet, I think, is right when he realizes that. And from that point on, he doesn't make a whole lot of movies. He, he pretty much makes a movie a year, mm-hmm. and he pretty much disappears. And we talked about him with Junior Bonner, uh, which we mm-hmm. did a few years ago. Yeah, and I like that one. Yeah, yeah. and... He doesn't do a lot of talking in that one either. He just pretty much, some would say maybe, he's uh, just riding on the coattails of the coolness and bullet. I just think he knew what his audience wanted. And I think Charles Bronson was the same way. And I think Burt Reynolds was the same way, uh, to his own detriment. I think they all were to their own detriment. I think they they found their niche and they milked it for every dollar they could make. Well, again, it, you know, and going back to... We were, what we were saying about talking about uh, you know movie executives, mm-hmm. it's that sort of thing where you know you see one thing that works, and instantly that's what I need to do the rest of my life. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, and it's the same. It's the same mentality that goes in here because I mean obviously, you know, movies are a fickle uh, business to begin with. Yeah. So if you if you know if you if you find something that actually you know gives you success, then I can certainly understand people who want to take that and you know drill it into the ground. Right. Uh, whether or not I I you know would agree with that, but you know at the same time I I could, I could at least get it. Uh, but I find it I find it kind of interesting that um, that it's the same on the top as it is you know in front of the camera as it is behind the camera. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Yeah. It's very it's very it's a very weird thing. I mean. I'd, and I don't know if I don't know if actors like this really exist anymore. I guess they kind of do. Uh, you know, you're seeing kind of a renaissance in these kind of actors, uh, or you have over the last decade in ways of these middle-aged action stars and these guys. That, I mean, Denzel Washington's making the same movie most of the time nowadays, anyway, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Liam Neeson's making the same movie pretty mm-hmm. much all the time. Yeah, but but these are also these are also guys who were very much lauded for their oh, yeah. yes. their chops, their acting yes. chops before. True. Uh, these things. True. Whereas a, Steve McQueen was kind of the opposite. Yeah, it's a bit of a different career path. You're right, but it's 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 interesting to me that actors sometimes reach this kind of pinnacle and then they, you know, again, I don't think Denzel Washington sits around. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Denzel Washington does sit around and he gets scripts and he's like, well, you know, is this going to make me look good? You yeah, know, I maybe. mean, I I would not say that's beyond any actor, any beyond no. any actor to say. Well, well, nobody wants to look like an asshole, yeah. you know, on a twenty-foot high screen, right. in front of how many millions of people. Right? Are you going to make me look good? I'd imagine it's quite a conversation that comes up often uh, sure. with directors and lead well, actors. I'm, I'm pretty sure that you know we talked about Paul Newman very briefly, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that when he went to do uh, Road to Perdition, uh, he said to the director, who I can't remember off the top of my head, Mendes. Uh, yeah, Mendes. Uh, he yeah. said to him, uh, he said to him, "Listen, he goes, I do one movie a year." 
I need to know that you're not going to make me look bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, you know, I, I get it. Yeah. So. I mean, some guys, you know, they're very protective of their career and they're very protective of the product that they make. Um, you know, obviously, I don't think Charles Bronson fits in there because I think Bronson knew that he was getting $5 million a movie from right. Canon and he didn't care what the product was. Yeah. Well, and, and Bronson was also a guy who, who never was a, a dialogue guy to begin with. So. No, 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 no. Definitely not a dialogue guy. I, I mean, you want, to, you want to talk about granite. Yeah. Yeah, and that's exactly from, what it was. Pennsylvania boy, so. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, I just think there's this kind of mythology with Steve McQueen that you bring up. And I think you either buy into that or you don't buy into that. Of course, I think it – and this sounds terrible to say, but I think you'll agree. It helps his mythology that he died tragically, right? Sure. It uh, always does, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, we look, we tend to look back on people like that and think about the what could have beens. Sure. Um, even if they weren't great people. Now, Steve McQueen was not a great guy. We should we should say that. Uh, I know that in his personal life, he was a bit of a shithead. Yeah. Um, so was Charles Bronson, for that matter. So was Paul yes. Newman. Uh, yes. So was just about every human being that walks the face of the planet, people. Uh, At some point or another. Wake up and smell the coffee. Um, but uh, it's, it's interesting how he kind of became canonized or... He became iconic for coolness when I would argue that, like I said, if you ever see any interviews with him, <laughs> if you ever see any interviews with him, he is so far removed from cool, it's uh, it's startling. Like, I can't watch, like... Well, I've seen footage of him dancing, if that helps. Yeah, uh, that, that is not good either. The, uh, <laughs> the Charles Bronson interviews were always uncomfortable because clearly he did not want to do it. Oh yeah, and you're like, when when's he gonna just tell some guy to shut up? The Steve McQueen interviews are odd because you're like, whoa, no wonder you don't talk in the movies that much. He's <laughs> just like, well, what are you talking about? Or what is wrong with you? Um, so anyway, it, it, you just don't know sometimes what makes a movie star and what doesn't. I think that's the most fascinating thing about Steve McQueen. Um, there's been a lot of guys that have come along that look better than him. Uh, they can act better than him. Um, but he had some something that um, I don't think you can explain really. Some charisma. No, he had he had that qual he had that quality that magnetism. Yeah. Um, and and a certain and a certain sort of uh, and a certain sort of look. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I agree with you. He does seem like the kind of guy. I didn't, uh, you know, uh, our childhood past are probably similar in some ways and very diverse in other ways. But I would agree. I do recall guys like Steve McQueen. Uh, around my dad oh, yeah. as well, and uh, but they were mostly of the biker element. So they were mostly because uh, I kind of grew up in the biker life, uh, right? So they were more, uh, I don't know, screwed, blued, and tattooed, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah. I get you. Uh, if you've so, ever seen John Mellencamp's uh, John Cougar Mellencamp so Hurt So Good video, I think I've said this before in the past on the show, but uh, those guys in that video hung out with my dad. <laughs> <laughs> because uh i'm i'm about two or three people removed from uh john cougar he's uh, like i said i think i've said on the show before he's he's been to our house i've, I've been around him he's very much a he's an interesting cat because he's very much a biker redneck kind of guy but he's kind of sold oh, himself yeah he's kind of sold himself as this artist type but it's interesting because he's not really that way at all <laughs> <laughs> he's uh he's very much uh anyway whatever but 
You know, I've been around that kind of stuff. That's the kind of stuff I grew up around. So, okay, nice. Uh, so I guess. yeah, I uh, guess. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the movie. Um, there's the uh, the scene in the cafeteria and the setup for the ostensible plot, which incidentally doesn't happen until a half an hour in after some colorful run-ins and character development. But more on that in a minute. Um, this is the first time that I realized in the movie that the the similarities between this and Midnight Run uh, oh. really kind of come out. Wow, I didn't um, I didn't even think of that, but yeah, they of do. Of course, well, yeah. I mean, I do, and Eli Wallach obviously is not is not uh, Joey Pants. Midnight Run's a better film. Certainly, uh, I would I, I would absolutely agree with that, but that's because uh, Midnight Run is focused. Yes, um, yes, this is which the, is what I, which is where I'm heading. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, well, and unlike so, our review, Midnight Run is focused. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean that's 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 our charm, right? That is our charm. Uh, yes, that's our magnetism. <laughs> that is- uh, there you go. Yeah. I'll sell. I'll shovel any bullshit you want. Um, so March is unofficially Tracy Walter month at the GGTMC. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, and. <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes I think that by watching other films, when we, you know, you've been around now for a while, been doing this here uh, podcasting thing for a while. I think sometimes movies kick up in your memory to to cover because you watch something else. Yeah, absolutely. I bought the Hunter a long time ago before we even talked about covering Batman and Batman Returns. Mm -hmm. But it's just funny how it all kind of plays out. Sometimes it's it's just funny how it does. (laughs) But yeah, it's officially yeah, it Tracy is. Walters month. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he does, he puts on some war paint like uh, Gavin O'Herlihy in Death Wish 3 uh, five years later. Um, that being said, uh, I feel like the filmmakers really should have either ditched the Tracy Walter plot or focused far more on it. Yeah. Um, I a, get that it's this weird. is. What, it's, a, it's, a weird, su- it's a weird subplot. It really is. It just feels so. I mean, it starts off as being like, okay, this is going to be our main plot, but then it's not. Yeah, which uh, one of I, us? I feel like which one of us is going to do the impersonation, right? The teacher. I'm going. <laughs> I'm going to kill I, Papa. <laughs> I would say you're going to. Yes, that's me. Uh, <laughs> I, I will say this for the record: this is probably one of the most emotional performances I've ever seen from Tracy Walter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he really. That scene where he's up against the window, he really goes for it. I'll give oh, yeah. him, I'll give him credit for that. Yeah. Yes, it's a very Robert England sort of uh, yeah turn. So, so I think maybe that might have been part of the appeal as a kid watching this movie is there felt like there was some kind of threat or horror element almost to the to the uh, Tracy Walters uh, kind of subplot. Although I will fully admit, as a guy who does armchair criticism of films. It does not fit this movie at all. It really doesn't. No. I mean, it feels really forced. You know, I, and I get that this is at least partly a biopic. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, naturally lends towards less plot-driven storytelling. But right. the, the whole Tracy Walter element here feels separate from uh, the much more um, anecdotal approach yeah. uh, of the rest of the movie. I mean, it, it feels contrived. And it feels like two movies in effect. Uh, and frankly, I'd rather have seen a movie without it. Yeah. Despite my love uh, for Tracy Walter. Yeah. 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 Um, and that's what it feels like. It feels like three or four good action set piece ideas. Oh yeah, the other good, right. a- the other action set piece I really like is the uh, the uh, the brothers, the the Trans Am yeah. scene. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, it feels like. 
three or four really good action set piece ideas, uh, and then let's just throw in a stalker plot. Yeah, and yeah, just so we that's can, pretty just much so we the movie. Get some kind of just yeah. so we can get some kind of emotional thing for the uh, the Catherine Harold um, character. I mean, I can't think of a more paint by numbers plot ever. Really, if you think about it, three or four action scenes. Let's make her pregnant and him dealing yep. with that, and let's put a stalker yep. element in it. Boom, we got a movie. Yeah. Yeah, and, I um, mean, it, it literally is. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Paint by numbers is the exact. Uh, yeah, the exact correct analogy for uh-huh. this. Yep. Um, so then we get to the uh, the sequence in Chicago, obviously with the L and all that. Oh yeah. Uh, which is you know it, it it's an entertaining sequence. Uh, but it is it is long, really dragged out. <laughs> uh, I think that they were reaching for that bullet moment in the movie with the dramatic use of the L and and everything, but yeah. I, it doesn't quite do it. No. Uh, no. And then immediately afterward, the movie jumps back into wrapping up the Walter subplot, which it never really cared about developing, but now it has to pay off. Yeah, yeah. My notes say the strange pacing of the last twenty minutes or so. <laughs> yeah, right. It just, it's just, it's just, it's so, it's so. Um, like up to that point, schizophrenic. I yeah, guess. up to that point, it's a pretty decent action thriller. I mean, it's not a great movie, but it's, you know, it's Papa comes home, he deals with some things, he goes back out and does an action scene. He comes right. back and home. The, and, if does, and if that's all that it was, that would be fine. Yeah, that, I mean that would have been fine as a Steve McQueen movie, but it's really weird because that and and I like that scene in Chicago, and I know you do too. But I agree with you completely. Sure. It goes on too long. There's oh, it absolutely does. Incredibly impressive stunt on that train, and mm-hmm. a great car falling out of a parking garage. Which that parking garage is still in Chicago, by the way. You can go there. I yes, saw it. it is. I saw it um, the last time I was up there, and I'm always, I always think of the Hunter whenever I look at it because it's very clearly. You know, it doesn't. It has retaining walls now on on the outside, whereas back in the day, it just had chains. Can you imagine yeah. going yes, up? Can. can you imagine parking on the twenty fifth floor of a parking garage, and the only thing stopping you from jumping out into the river or on the concrete is a piece of chain? Well, you got to remember, this is back when you could smoke in a hospital. That's so. that's true. That's true. You could smoke around open oxygen. Hey, uh, yeah, but it it's it 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 is a weird way to wrap the movie up i'm with you if it's if the movie is just beats if it's just papa's a home pop or action scene papa goes home action scene papa goes home action scene papa goes home yeah i would have been fine with that as as repetitious and silly as that sounds that would have made a better film the problem with this movie i'm sorry they could have they could have anchored it against his relationship with Dottie. yeah which they kind of do but then they kind of don't do well, that's so the thing it like, too. It like brings it up, but then it forgets about it. Just yeah, like the Tracy Walter thing. It brings it up, but then it forgets about it. Yeah, that's then, that's know. the thing about the Dottie thing. Like Catherine Harold, she's fine. I like Catherine Harold. I think she's a very attractive lady. I, oh, I love her. Yeah. yeah, and but her performance in the movie is very wooden because they it's so male centric. This movie, yep, yep, that she's just there to give us the great Steve McQueen reaction shots. That people fans of steve mcqueen want they want the goofy look they want the they want the scene of him uh freaking out in the car because she's he's afraid she's going to have a baby in the car they want those scenes of him reacting to things like that so mm-hmm. you know that's the only reason why she's there which is kind of a shame and kind of a sad use of uh, Catherine harold to be honest sure no i agree um so then the uh, the interesting thing with this movie is that you know d- despite some of the more serious elements of the movies, like the pregnancy, like the, the Richard venture angle, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, that's the film itself. I'm sorry. Sorry. That's a weird one. The whole Richard venture. Yeah. Right. It's out of the fucking blue. That comes. 
whip know. pen. There we go. Does lead to one of the uh, great moments, though. My favorite moments in the movie is when he pulls into that garage and he hits the wall and he goes, ah, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was okay. Uh, but the film itself feels pretty light and breezy. Uh, and I suspect that this comes at least in part from uh, Kulik's television background and that tendency uh, to want to be all things to all people and never be overly serious or have consequences that are all that messy, which kind of also refers back to, you know, what we were saying about McQueen uh, in general and his, you know, wanting to uh, wanting more than than uh, a little more attention than than what he had. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's a good movie more for being a very easy watch than from any innate like technical or like thespian qualities. Uh, and again, this comes from the, the, the you know, the more the the, the um, episodic uh, personality of it, in my opinion. Um, so it's it's one of those things where it's like I, I like it, I like it, I to a, a better degree than I remembered liking it. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it is also heavily flawed. And if you're, I don't think that if you're if you are a McQueen enthusiast, I don't think you're going to get as much out of this uh as you might because i think you're gonna you're gonna tend to want to harp on the uh, the flaws that it has uh more than anything else mm. which are pretty major uh, to yeah. be perfectly blunt about it yeah yeah no I agree. um but th- that's uh, that's all the notes that i got yeah um i'll say a few things i agree with most of what you said um uh, i i think probably the only area we disagree if we disagree at all really is that uh, I think if you are a Steve McQueen completionist, I think you still will enjoy this because I think if you love him, you'll find you'll find excuses to enjoy this movie more than you want. <laughs> oh, I, I, no, I, I completely agree with you on that. Um, because I think it's all about it's all about him, pretty much. Because the direction there's nothing there's nothing really outstanding about the direction. It's very run of the mill. Uh, there's some argument behind the scenes that McQueen directed it himself. Because he had reached that point in his career where he pretty much had control, um. So you know, maybe, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I'm sure he had more than a few things to say to Buzz Kulick, and that's the reason why Buzz Kulick was making this movie and not uh, Sam Peckinpah or, well, Peckinpah by the 1979, 1980, he's pretty much almost washed out, right? But, um, I'm sure you know McQueen when he worked with uh, more driven directors, John Sturgis, Sam Peckinpah. People like that, I'm sure that uh, he didn't get as much say, and they understood him anyway. But I'm sure toward after his hits, after Bullet and things like that, I'm pretty sure he probably ran the show in some mm-hmm. way. Uh, it is fun to see uh, McQueen and Ben Johnson, uh, you know, because there's you know these are old cowboys, right? These are old. Uh, the, the, those scene that scene's fun, even though it's clearly it's funny growing up. Hey, you watch movies, and, and here I am, 48 years old in a couple weeks, and it's so clearly shot on a movie set that scene in, in Ben Johnson's office. <laughs> and maybe it's the HD element. Cause I watched this in HD, but man, it is so clearly, uh, some backdrop city photos and <laughs> shot in a, in a studio that it's unbelievable. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, I like that. He gets a haircut in his office too. Ben Johnson, that that's, that's a sign of power right there. Yes, it when is. Always the hair- was. Yeah. When you get the haircut done in your office, you, know, you can't be bothered mm-hmm. to leave the office. That's right. People come to you. That's right. Um, I really. So let me talk a little bit about. So McQueen makes two movies toward the end of his life. Uh, Tom Horn and The Hunter. Uh, Tom Horn. I think is that, is that the one he directed? Is, is 
did he direct uh, i feel like he directed a film yeah no he didn't direct it william weird weird directed it but i i remember reading that he was very heavily involved in it in both of those movies he's starting to not only show his age but he's he's quite ill at this point like i said he he had throat cancer before uh they kind of kept it hush hush um as they tended to do back in the day uh people's personal lives didn't come out as much as they do now but um he had made uh, the towering inferno which he had went out of his way to make sure that he got top billing over paul newman because him and newman were competitive and of course they both liked race cars and everything else but mcqueen was very very competitive uh behind the scenes he always wanted to be the top dog no matter what he did if it was uh you know uh, whatever it was he wanted to be number one he's just that, mm-hmm. that that so he has that type of personality so that should tell you a lot about you know some of the rumors of his assholishness behind the scenes. He's a very competitive person. So um, I remember that the Towering Inferno producers were like, "Well, no, Paul Newman's the star, so we're gonna make sure we push him." And he's like, "Okay, that's fine." He goes, "I just want my name on the left hand side of the poster," and the, and the producers were like, "Fine, whatever." Uh, but it was a genius move because people read left to right; they don't read yep. right to left. So. <laughs> he got, not in America anyway yeah he got over on him on that one so um, pretty funny pretty funny story always a funny story to me um, he, he you know up until Bullet he pretty much makes a bunch of really cool movies I think uh, mostly just kind of small parts but kind of cool parts Bullet some people don't like Bullet I like Bullet because it's a, kind of a different kind of hero movie and I enjoy Le Mans. I enjoy Junior Bonner, obviously, and The Getaway. I mean, these are Sam Peckinpah movies at that point. Papillon has its own is its own kind of flavor and taste, and he's really good in Papillon. I think that's the one thing. I don't love Papillon, the movie. I think it's way too long, but I think that him going with Dustin Hoffman, you know, if you'd have told me those two guys would create a chemistry together, I just couldn't see it. But as a kid mm-hmm. growing up, I've seen that movie a bunch of times, and they really are great together. It's like uh, it's one for me. It's one of the great kind of bro relationships in uh, cinema history. They're really good together, and you couldn't ask for two more different actors in real life. You know, you got one who's completely method, and one who's like, "Hey, Dustin, what the fuck are you doing, man? <laughs> Take the glasses off, bro." Um, <laughs> it's funny too how much films change during Steve McQueen's run in Hollywood. You think about you know from The Great Escape to The Hunter. You know, that's only 17 years. Uh, but movies changed so much between the early 60s and the late 70s. And McQueen's, he was only going to be around for a while anyway because he was definitely a star of that period. Mm-hmm. Um, you got the Method guys. Then There was always Method guys before that, but the Method guys really kind of take over in the late 60s, early 70s, right? Yes. And people don't want actors like... Steve McQueen as much anymore but there has to be some audience I think it's the international audience because Bronson blows up in the 70s McQueen's pretty popular in the 70s and I think that's because American movies played very well internationally at that point the dialogue comes down uh, the action scenes go up and you're able to sell that movie internationally more I mean that happens all the time now but back then it didn't happen a lot so these movies were kind well, of I think that's all, I, think, I think that that's also partially um at least in america part of the whole you know culture war uh-huh. kind of deal because you had the much more uh you know liberal hippie kind of thing in the whole 
method thing that comes out of that sort of, uh, or at least they're more, they lean a little bit more that way. Whereas, you know, there's the whole other segment of the, the population, which is a little more, um, I don't want to say conservative cause I don't think that's the right word, but, uh, just more, uh, traditional. Yeah. No. Uh, I guess. Um, and uh, and that would be more towards the the leaning of you know the more the more stoicy kind of uh, old school kind of uh, acting like a like a Bronson or like a McQueen or yeah. all those sort of guys. Yeah, these guys that are factory studio trained. You know, they show up, they get on a horse, they do what they got to do, they learn how to ride a horse, they do a little dancing. Mm-hmm. You know, they can do anything. Uh, but now we're getting into the era of actors who, you know, live the role who, you know, right, right. You know, go out and drive taxis or go out and God knows what, do drugs to see what it's like to be a drug addict. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we're getting into people who want to bring quote-unquote realism to the screen. And there, there's a place for that as well as a place for, sure. you know, the McQueens and the Bronsons. Uh, that's the great thing about movies is that they don't they don't all have to be the same. And, and also, you know, you 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 love what you love. I mean, it, it's, it's the... I love Steve McQueen as an actor, even though I clearly don't think he was the most talented actor. Um, I love him because there's something about his performances that draws your eye to him. Now, of course, the great analogy or the great example of this is his performance in The Magnificent Seven, where Yul Brynner was being a prick because uh, Yul Brynner was a star. And he was being a prick on set. And so McQueen went out of his way to steal every scene he was in with Yul Brynner. Uh, because he knew it would piss him off, and that's that, that. There's an ugliness to that, obviously, but there's also a genius to that. Because mm-hmm. you know, if you go back and look at it, one of the people you're going to remember the most in the Magnificent Seven, and he's not even in the movie that much, is Steve McQueen, mm-hmm. and that's pretty impressive when you think about it. I mean, he knew enough about movies at that point to know, well, I'll get one over on this guy. I'll just make sure I find a way. And I found that kind of impressive. And, of course, I think he pretty much curtails his whole career to that. But anyway, let's get back to this movie. So this, like I said, this is the end of his uh, career and the end of his life at this point. And, you know, I think he's just – he. I don't know if he wanted to make a series of Bounty Hunter movies or what. Um, uh, the real Ralph Papa Thorson is in the movie. He plays the bartender, the big heavy set bartender with the beard. Um, I think that, you know – Again, I think time is passing Steve McQueen by at this point. I think he knows his life is nearly over. I know that he had some optimism about his diagnosis. Um, but he eventually was told that there was no hope, and that's why he ended up in Mexico, and he ended up dying down there. Hmm. And he tried everything he could uh, to survive, but it just was it was all over him. It, it's one of the, If you ever read a biography on him and you ever read some of the stuff that he went through for the last couple of months of his life, Jesus Christ. Uh, you can see why people say, you know, no more of that. I'm just going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. Yeah. Because he really went through hell the last couple of months of his life. I mean, he was ate up. I mean, he would, you hear people say that, but I mean, he was completely ate up with it. So it's really, it's really kind of a sad story. Um, but yeah, the, 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 I think the best things about this movie are the Steve McQueen elements. I think, you know, the Jasper Brothers scene, uh, it adds the element of being funny because he can't drive a Trans Am. Um, and the dynamite's hilarious. Uh, dynamite? What? Wait, what dynamite? Um, 
the uh, the train sequence, although long, I agree with you, is uh, is still very good. Uh, well, I don't know if it's very good, but it certainly has some elements in it that are incredibly impressive. And I, like I say, that stunt of the guy hanging off the train, I mean, that's as impressive as anything Jackie Chan ever did. Uh, I don't know who that stuntman is. It's clearly not Steve McQueen, but I mean, I don't know who that stuntman is, but Jesus Christ, bravo to him. I didn't see any safety wire or anything, so fuck that. <laughs> I mean, it looked like a, it did. It did it not remind you of like a Jackie Chan stunt? It kind of it reminded did. me. Yeah, it did actually. Kind of something that he would do. I mean, obviously, well, I think I, he uh, he kind of did uh, something like that in Super Cop. Super Cop. Yeah, which has got some of the most in- insane stuff I've ever seen anybody do. Uh, that <laughs> I'm just like, oh man, that's just crazy. But this is a pretty crazy stunt by this particular stunt man. Um. But yeah, one of the weird elements of the movie that strikes me, there's this great little musical beat in the movie that I like. Uh, And then there's a lot of really bad score in the movie, too. Yeah. There's that one little kind of, it's kind of a, (laughs) and I like that. Okay. That works. But everything else does not. And it's kind of awkward and strange. It's kind of a strange score. And I know there was a lot of behind-the-scenes hubbub about the score, too, so I didn't read far enough into it to know, but there we have that. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a mixed bag, man. I mean, it, it, it it's not, obviously, Steve McQueen's shining moment, um, but I think if you go back and you look at his old films and stuff, it's kind of a nice capper on his career. I mean, it, Tom Horn's not a bad one either. It's kind of a weird movie in a way but those last two movies he made were are interesting um i think you know obviously his probably his last great performance is probably papillon uh, although I, I know folks do love him in the towering inferno uh you know i loved the towering inferno when i was a kid i've tried to watch it again since i really can't stand it now but it's 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 a little rough in the uh, in the disaster uh, movie yeah olympics there but when you know when we were kids probably i mean that movie's almost as old as we are mm-hmm. you know it was it was a big movie it was a big deal oh yeah and uh, it was a great concept. It was one of those high concept thriller type movies that yeah, Hollywood yeah. is still making. <laughs> but uh, it, you know, and it's fine. Don't get me wrong. It's got a great cast, and uh, it's interesting to watch for that reason. But it's just it's it's kind of uncomfortable. And I think he didn't want to go out that way. I think he knew he was sick, and I think he wanted to go out doing something different than that. So, and I think this movie's decent. I don't think it's great because I think what Todd said is all accurate. I think it's. Well, we kind of discussed it's it's if it would have stayed strictly to the action beat, little home stuff back and forth, and then kind of capitalized on still the birth of a child, which spoiler alert, a child is born in this movie. But if it would have just capitalized on that as him surviving these escapades, I think it would have been just fine. I don't think they needed to put Dottie in turmoil to uh to get any real buy-in i think the buy-in Dottie and uh, ralph papa thorson is the fact that ralph papa thorson needs to grow up yeah and i think that was enough but i i don't yep. i don't i don't know if they just felt like they had to get asses in seats a little bit and they had to up the ante and bring the tracy walters thing in there now don't get me wrong i'm, I'm with you i love tracy walters i mean i i'll take him in anything he's in but uh, even Rob Zombie movies. Even you would uh, argue that he's probably the best part of some Rob Zombie movies. <laughs> but 
Uh, you're awful quiet over there. But uh, uh-huh. but um, <laughs> the I don't want I don't want to inspire you to uh, pick a Rob Zombie movie next week. Yeah, yeah. You never know. Yeah, you you've been quiet ever since thirty one. You're just like, oh my god, I got to be quiet. He'll pick another Rob Zombie film. <laughs> I don't want to chum the water. <laughs> That's wise. That's very wise. <laughs> I'm a whisper, Rob Zombie. Yeah, you say it three times in a fucking mirror, and he yeah. shows up behind you. Yeah, yeah. teacher. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, um, uh, Lordy. I, yeah, I mean, these kind of actors, I just don't know if they really exist as much anymore. Uh, I think these King of Cool actors are pretty much. Not I mean, really. I mean, they're around a little bit. Um, a couple here and there, but yeah. But if you do see them, they're going to be in, in. They're going to be in low budget, uh, low budget uh, action movies. Yep, typically it's pretty much it. So maybe some Asian. They're not going to be given movies. the same sort of uh, space mm-hmm. as uh, as these guys had. Yeah, yeah. I think you know Asian cinema might be the only place where they allow actors to really kind of be cool on their physical elements nowadays. Uh, well, it's been that way for a little while, but you know they. I think some of the best Asian action cinema is always kind of the bonus of it is always the the action acting is really good, but uh, the less dialogue, the better a lot of times uh, because mm-hmm. they can't emote as well. It's what I've often said about Tony Jaa, right, is that physically he's he's great, but the minute he starts emoting and being dramatic, it's like, oh, my God, somebody turned the TV off. So. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this one does have some strange pacing and stuff, but it's got a lot of fun moments, and uh, I, I, I can recommend it. I, I tell you something that's weird about this movie. I never could figure out if it's shot in L.A. or shot in Chicago, or both. And I guess watching it this time, I guess I kind of put together that it is both because he kind of travels. But when I was a kid, yeah. I remember thinking, "Wow, I didn't know there was palm trees in Chicago." <laughs> <laughs> Because I don't think it's clearly only defined. on the only on the mile there. <laughs> it's not clearly defined. It's just like you know, it, it kind of goes back and forth, but it, it's it's weird. And of course, at one point he's in Texas, I guess. So it's 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 a weird movie in that way. Uh, I don't think they clearly define their geography very well. But again, I think that probably falls on Buzz Kulik more than it does mm-hmm. anything else. But yeah, man, I had a good time with it. I, I I enjoy the Steve McQueen reaction shots. I do enjoy that scene with Dottie sitting there talking about kids have you know p- people having kids and babies and he's working on that toy and he's kind of just looking at her kind of fawning over her but at the same time you can see and again this might just be me but i think mcqueen does a lot with his face and his eyes where he has these moments of guilt where he lives this lifestyle that he clearly knows is not going to be good to be a parent and uh i think it kind of shines through in some of his acting so I think he, you know, he was the master of the reaction shot. Uh, nobody can tell me otherwise. I mean, I, I don't think anybody reacts in cinema better than he has. There probably is some, but he's one of the best. I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he he continued that up until the point he died. So very interesting film for that reason, uh, but very flawed as well. I agree with Todd on that. So let's hear uh, Make or Break's MVTs. All right, uh, Make or Break. Um, I'm still going with the beanbag gut shot. Uh, which I <laughs> nice. laid out in full detail earlier. Uh, so, uh, MVT, I'm going to go with the McQueen Harold relationship. Uh, uh I yeah. think that they share a very nice chemistry on screen and I think that they provide a good anchor and, um, heart for the action sequences to hang on to. 
Uh, if only they had uh, managed to develop that um, more. Um, but they didn't. And score for me is actually kind of on the high side. Uh, I think it's a, I'm going seven out of 10. Wow. Uh, on this one. So, wow. I mean, like I said, it's, it's light and breezy. And I think that that it really helps it along. That's higher than I got. Um, I'm just going to be forthright with you right now. That's higher than I went. See that? How about that? So there wow. you have it, man. How about that? Um, uh, yeah, you make a break for me. I'm going to go with the Jasper brothers scene. I really enjoy that uh, one. Okay. Uh, I like when the dynamite's flying through the air. Uh, and he's like, Oh shit. And then, uh, <laughs> you know, they, the fact that they take his car and they drive it through the cornfield, which is an amazing visual, right? The, yeah, yeah. obviously it makes no sense for him to have a, uh, some type of, uh, combine coming after them, uh, because it just makes no sense, but it looks great from that aerial photography of them, you know, chewing up that corn. Um, it just, it, it looks, I just think, I, I just like that scene. I just think it's funny. And of course they, they, it has a great comic, uh, beat where they come back into the car rental place and he just gives her the keys and walks away. Yeah. So uh, obviously you can't do that. Uh, my MVT is going to be Steve McQueen. Uh, I mean, this is him through and through. I do like that uh, relationship you talk about. It is really good. Uh, as is the relationship between him and LeVar Burton. Uh, it's yeah, really good yeah. as well. But I mean, this is this is a McQueen vehicle, and he's front and center in most of it. Uh, my score, though, because uh, I do feel like it's a Frankenstein movie in a lot of ways. It's just a bunch of parts put together, and somehow they make it work. Uh, but it's a six point two five, a little lower than yours. Uh, as much as I love McQueen, I can't get past the fact. And as much as I love this movie, I'm just gonna be forthright and tell you, I've seen this movie hundreds of times, and I, and I have a really soft spot for it. I really do. Uh, but nostalgia doesn't mean I'm gonna. You know, I, I can't be, you know, I can't give it another 0. 0.75 or or full point on nostalgia because going back and looking at it critically, the seams show. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm happy you enjoyed it as much as you did. I am. Because I'm watching I'm thinking, oh, man, Todd, I'm probably not going to dig this too much. And uh, I'm glad you dug it as much as you did. That makes me feel good. It means you didn't waste your time, brother. You didn't wish time. Uh-huh. time is becoming a, uh, it's a tricky thing for us nowadays. It is a scarce commodity. Yeah. We have less of it than we've used. That's scary. In more ways than one. Yeah. Yeah. That's scary to think about, ain't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I tell people that sometimes and they're like, wow, that's a dismal way to look at life. I'm like, well, no, not really. <laughs> not to me. It ain't to me. It's like, well, you know, it is, it is what it is. I'm on the back nine, brother. I'm on, you know, it is what it is. And maybe I could live another 48 years, but I don't know if I want to. That leads into another conversation I won't get into. Anyway, we (laughs) will take a short break and we'll come back and talk about a movie that's completely similar in no no way, shape, or form. Uh, And that's Dr. Caligari. We'll be back right after this. i 
right. When the bullets hit the, bullet the bone. I thought we agreed no Rob Zombie. <laughs> yeah, that's a. Uh, the bloody hammers are very Rob Zombie-esque in some ways, but uh, I think musically, I enjoy the bloody hammers more. I'm a big recommend for me. Definitely check out the bloody hammers. Great title. Great band name, too, by the way. Bloody hammers. Yeah, it is. It's great. great uh, if you're a horror movie junkie, and they are, uh, they are very uh, zombie-esque in that way. They have a lot of songs that are uh, titled after movies we probably like or love. Um, right. Let me clear my throat there. That's another song we like, right? Um, Dr. Caligari. That one's better. Yeah, 1989. <laughs> uh, from, uh, that song's better than Twilight Zone? I mean, I don't know about that version of Twilight Zone, but do you think that's better than the Golden Earring song? No. <laughs> yeah. Settle down. I won't. I won't call you on your taste often, but uh, if you're going to tell me, let me clear my throat's better than uh, Tw- Golden Earrings version of the Twilight Zone. I'm going to have. To, we're going to have to have a debate on air, <laughs> and I'm going to have to ask some serious questions. Um, <laughs> Doctor Caligari, 1989, uh, directed by one Stephen Syedian, um, who worked with Jerry Stahl quite a bit. Uh, Jerry Stahl, who uh, uh, did he create Alf or he just write for Alf? Uh, I don't know off uh, the top of my head. I think he was, uh, you know, he was obviously the subject of a movie about heroin abuse called Permanent Midnight that Ben Stiller did, which was harrowing and a bit uh, disturbing. He's been through it, Jerry Stahl has. Let's put it that way. So is Stephen Sadian for what it's worth. Um, he's a big comic book guy. Not that you couldn't tell from watching these mo- this movie. <laughs> uh, Mrs. Van Hooten has shown signs of losing touch with reality, and her husband discusses possible treatment with Dr. Caligari, who says Mrs. Van Hooten has a disease of the libido. Mm-hmm. So we'll leave it at that. So uh, Todd picked this one. This movie is unlike most things you will see. Uh, and that's that's a Stephen Saidian thing. Um, his pornography, Cafe Flesh, uh, Night Dreams, it's unlike pornography you'll see. Yep. Uh, he has a unique visual uh, touch that I can't quite explain. Except to say, and Todd, I think you're going to agree with this, because this is coming up a lot all of a sudden in the last 15 minutes, an almost Rob Zombie-esque type of element. <laughs> not not uh, there visually. Is, there visually. is that. Yeah. Visually, visually I, I, you know, I have to uh, assume um, that uh, that. Gary Panter, Wayne White, and Rick Heitzman are fans of this film because I thought that the the sets in this thing are very reminiscent of Pee Wee's Playhouse. Oh God, yeah. Uh, especially in the in the uh, in the typography sort yeah. of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that they have. Yeah, and I also feel um, like uh, I feel like Pee Wee's Playhouse is a big influence on Rob Zombie too. I mean, I'm, I just I feel that way. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. This kind of obscure, obtuse Dutch angle colorfulness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these. so saying Pee-wee's Playhouse, that should give everybody kind of an idea of what this movie looks like, but it doesn't really give you a complete idea because it's a little bit of that. There's a little trauma in here. There's a little... Yeah, yeah. There's a little bit of everything, but it it, it is unique. I don't think... When I think of Steven Sadie in films, I don't think... I can't think of any other... film. I mean, I can think of other filmmakers, obviously. They're probably inspired by him. But I think at the time when he's making films, he's unique. 
He's uh, yeah. maybe in the Elfman camp a little bit, strange behavior. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, something like that. I mean, that that kind of comes, the Richard Elfman stuff. Yeah. 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 That kind of comes out a little bit. You can see a little bit of that in there. At least I, I Yeah, do. that and uh, Liquid Television. Oh, yeah. Liquid Television, uh, yes. Mm-hmm. So a very MTV influence mm-hmm. uh, on this uh, on this thing. And certainly in, in 1980, I mean, and that was kind of also, you know, part of his thing was this, this whole crossover of art and porn. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I get how that could appeal uh, to a filmmaker, but I can also see how you would need to be exceedingly careful to serve both your masters on that kind of thing yeah so this gets into that um, world this gets into that world of that where stanley kubrick once said that you know one of the reasons why he ended up making eyes wide shut was he wanted to make he didn't want to make a porn film but he wanted to mix pornography into a standard movie mm-hmm. in some way and he can never really figure out a way to crack it that wasn't gonna quote-unquote ruin his career uh, he tried and i don't think anybody has well, I don't think they have, no, because I think no matter what, the stain of pornography, right? Uh, it sticks with folks. Now, some folks have survived it uh, and made careers, um, but nobody has really ever kind of reached the quote-unquote heights of esteem uh, if you worked in that world. I mean, there's always been the cult actors and the cult directors and and bits and pieces, right? But there's never been anybody that really kind of trans they never really get above it because pornography leaves such a a mark on your career mm-hmm. and obviously I, I think you know where i stand on this I, th- I think you know i'm a very liberal person in a lot of ways i, th- I think that you know that's kind of unfair um because i think pornography is well i think it can be don't get me wrong. I don't think pornography nowadays is this way, but I think at one point pornography could have been an interesting art form. Now pornography is not even filmmaking, uh, in my opinion, uh, because you don't, you know, you're just shooting the act at this point. Yeah. Uh, as some would argue you always have, but I would argue that if you go back and look at seventies porn, people are trying to make a movie. Uh, they were because well, but the, that was also when you know the seventies was when it got a little bit of legitimacy because it went yeah. from the loops to yeah, that being was actually on theater marquees yeah. to that was as open as we ever got with it, right? Sure, as a culture, uh, I should sure. Say. But even but even then, I but even then it was always that. But I think that that also was more like a um uh a coolness thing, like a hip thing. Yeah. Like it's no. like, oh, look what I'm doing. Look, I'm slumming with these porn stars. It's, they were still treated. I mean, come on. They were still basically, you know, sideshow freaks to be, sure. you know. Sure, Yeah. Uh, yeah like, like people who would, uh, who would, you know, if you go to a brothel, but you don't, you know. Anybody whatever. with a 44 triple F breast or a 14 inch cock is a sideshow freak. Yes. Because yeah, no, that, but I'm, that's talking, I'm talking about in, the ter- in, in terms of the, you know, it's just, it's slumming sort of shit. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's hanging out with, it's hanging out with a dangerous element. It's, uh, sure. it's yeah. like old school Hollywood hanging out with the mafia. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's, you know, it's any of those elements, you know, there's certain a level of, uh, Hollywood that always wants to be around the bad boys, mm-hmm. you know, the people who aren't afraid to take the risk. And of course the pornography world in the seventies, they were seen as risque and, and, uh, you know the bad boys, and yeah. uh, that—that's the reason why you had some people hanging out with those folks. But of course, that—that—that that, uh, that stains 
pretty quickly. It doesn't uh, stick around. It's funny. Nobody really got hurt too badly out of those 70s porn films. Uh, well, not uh, not the big actors that would hang around with some of those folks, but they kind of came out of it okay. But uh, I think they got away from it before the cocaine really took over the industry. And, uh, you know, of course, they were still abusing cocaine as Hollywood people anyway let's get it let's get into let's get into the lighter fare let's talk about steven Sayedian, his uh his alter ego rinse dream which was the uh, name he gave himself uh, when he directed mostly pornography uh which is a great name rinse dream that's a great name mm-hmm. um i've seen uh a handful of his pornography films i've seen the wall of voodoo uh, do it again video okay which uh it's not surprising to me that he worked with wall of voodoo that's a very underrated band, and visually, they are an interesting band. Uh, I haven't seen everything well, he's done. Uh, well, now, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Full full, full disclosure. Yep. Uh, I did own a big box VHS of his party dollar go go. Oh, did you? Uh, which yeah, which came out two years after this. Okay. Uh, but nice. it, it still bears a lot of the same hallmarks uh, as this movie. It has like the stream of consciousness dialogue. It has the overt. Uh, like posturing and posing for the camera and so on. It just does it with uh, with oiled torsos, full penetration, and money shots. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think uh, that the big difference, uh, other than that, is that this movie has the uh, rather unsexy virtue of weeping pustules and uh, overt <laughs> violence. So that's so that's that's an interesting element, right? So that so he, he knows never. He's he's kind of Cronenbergian, and well, he's definitely Cronenbergian in this one. Oh yeah, but he he never mixes his pornography and his uh, Cronenbergianness too much. Like he knows no. not to. Yeah. Uh, we should say party go girl go go. That also sounds very Rob Zombie ish just to hear that title. <laughs> but also that stars some uh, GG. Those 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 things star some GG TMC favorites such as uh, Peter North and uh, Randy Spears is in those. Yep. So. Yep. Yep. Uh, you know, I knew you was a big fan going way back. So there we go. Um, but he he has this interesting career where he he worked and made some stuff in the late 80s and, and 90s and then he just kind of disappears um he made you know his first film was in 82 and then he just he just i don't know what he's done for a career since his films but he's just kind of you know he's out there i know that yeah. i know good friend of the show mike white i know he re- interviewed him uh, not too long ago, it's a pretty great interview listening to him talk because he's really heavily influenced by comic books. Go figure. Mm. And uh, if you see this, you can see a lot of that, right? I mean, I, I see comic book panels when I look at this film. I see comic book panels when I look at his pornography. Um, so obviously, clearly, he has an eye and he has a talent. I guess he can never really translate that into a career, though, because from 82 to 93 is pretty much his his area of working and you know he only really made one that i know of one straight movie and that's this one a quote-unquote mm-hmm. straight movie uh and that's this one uh, everything else he made is pornography for the most part right mm-hmm. uh he's got his untamed cowgirls of the wild west which uh, one of them is uh, subtitled the pillow biters which uh you know <laughs> <laughs> that's just, well, we've all been there and the other one is subtitled jamie glands from the rio grande so there we go you don't you don't want any jamie glands those are new no. you want them unfettered <laughs> that's peter north. unfettered glands peter north would argue you never want it to be jamie it needs, to be, uh, it needs to be fluid <laughs> yes it should uh, not be like jello one of the great things about picking pornography is we get to be so grown up 
Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, he 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 worked at Hustler. Uh, Steven Sidian did. He was a production designer, kind of a, a editorial department at Hustler Magazine. So he did that in the beginning. Uh, he's the same age as my mother. That's disturbing. Um, <laughs> but that's kind of where he got his start as kind of a production designer working there and stuff. And then he kind of moved into films. And I guess it just never really panned out for him. But he is kind of a cult figure uh, now, uh, which is kind of interesting. It's interesting to me anyway uh, that he's uh, turned into this kind of uh, kind of cult figure and stuff. And I think that's because his porn films stand out. I mean... They they do they are unique. Uh, you can't look at Cafe Flesh and Night Dreams uh, and tell me they're not unique. I can't speak for Party Girl or Go Go or Party Doll or Go Go. Maybe you can. Uh, I never saw those. Well, at least I don't think I have. Um, <laughs> I say that because God knows what I've seen when it comes to that area. <laughs> but I do know that I have seen Cafe Flesh. I've seen the Wall of Voodoo video. I've seen Caligari, Night Dreams two, and Night Dreams three. I haven't seen the Party Doll Go-Go's or the Untamed Cowgirls of the Wild West, so can't speak for those. But his work is unique to him. And I think that that's something, you know, you've heard me kind of champion on the show over the years is that I want to see, you know, a film a filmmaker's personality shine through when I, when I yeah. watch a movie. Yeah. And if nothing, if nothing else, Saiyadian does do that, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So let's get into this movie a little bit. So this movie is kind of a sequel in spirit to the cabinet of dr caligari mm-hmm. um i think she's the daughter right of the yeah, doctor yeah, it, yeah. it does it does set itself up as a sequel um and you know fair enough yeah uh yeah fair because enough. that film that film uh uh well nah, we'll get into it go ahead yeah go ahead. yeah that'd be an interesting to talk about at some point on the show i mean that goes way back obviously in film history but it's got a lot of interesting elements to it that make it stand well, but, but, out. But interestingly, interestingly, the, the the interesting thing that he did that he picked this as the you know as a, as the, as the project is that the in the visual aspects because that movie is is you know essentially wrote the book on German expressionism. Yeah. Uh, in cinema, and I and I give credit for trying uh, for society and trying to to follow in those footsteps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, I don't know, I haven't never, you know, obviously I never talked to him or I haven't read a whole lot about him, but he just seems like a guy who had bigger aspirations than yeah. what it turned out he was able to do. And uh, I don't know if that's sad. I mean, he might he might be happy with what he did, but, um, you know, it, it seems like visually he definitely had talent and it seems like he could have curbed that or curtailed that into a career. Um and again, I don't know what he's doing nowadays. Maybe he's just selling houses. Who knows? I mean, Rob Bottin, right. last right. I yeah, heard, I don't know. Yeah, last I heard, Rob Bottin was selling houses. So Ugh. the world is a, a strange place sometimes where it takes you. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I heard. I heard Rob Bottin's a real estate agent. So <laughs> uh, who knows? Uh, Mark Gregory. Remember, I think we made that joke on the GGTMC before. Mark Gregory, who starred in those uh, Italian films, he ended up being a real estate agent. And of course, Michael Safkic, he ended up being a a wine guy. And you just never know where you, you know life's going to take you. No, you don't. No, so, you don't. Who knows? But I did get you know the Rob Zombie esqueness of it here. It's unusual this movie, to say the least. I mean, you got characters that are saying random things like chinchilla, chinchilla. <laughs> uh, 
Well, yeah, it's it's totally stream of consciousness yeah. in that. Uh, so that if if anybody's going to watch this, my one warning would be it's so stream of consciousness that it's either going to turn you off or yeah. it's going to turn you on. And yep. I don't mean in the way you think either. No. Because I don't think it's that kind of movie. Um, no, there's a, there's a lot of nudity, but it's not like really, I don't think it's all that uh, erotic. Sexy. Yeah. No, yeah it's it's not, not like titillating. No, it didn't, say. it didn't get me going. I know that. It, no. And Laura Albert, who, not Laura Albert, but um, oh, what's her name? Uh, is it... Uh, Ooh. Uh, Madeline Raynal? You know, Gina. No, not, not yeah. No, who's the uh, who's the actress that plays the? Uh, oh, Laura Albert. Laura Albert. Yeah, yeah. who yeah. plays the Van Hooten character? Now she's GGTMC royalty. She plays. Uh, she played by, by Brian uh, Bosworth's uh, girlfriend in Stone Cold. Mm-hmm. So she's a GGTMC royalty. So she gets a pass in a lot of things on this. But she's nude a lot in the movie, and uh, I'd imagine this might be a performance either one she takes pride in, or two she never wants to talk about again because it's. <laughs> it's an odd one. There, the, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is this wall of flesh uh, moment yeah. uh, when she's kind of uh, gesticulating around this wall of flesh that's oozing pustules and I got a huge tongue, maybe the biggest tongue we've ever seen on the show. That's saying something. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a scene for the ages. That one, that one, uh, that one won't leave your brain anytime soon. It, it is certainly memorable. Yeah. And there's there's a lot of moments that that when so as a film this is hard to review because it is a stream of consciousness so it's 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 an art film in a lot of ways it's a big time art film uh, not a lot of money behind it but I mean it is as big an art film as you're going to run across and these films are always difficult to review because I think you get out of them what you want to get out of them individually I don't think I don't think it's possible for me to say Todd this is right up your alley. Unless right. you tell me you like a bunch of Guy Madden films or you like a bunch of, uh, oh. Kuchar movies. Kuchar movies or, God, who's who's the uh, who's the guy that hung out with, uh, who's the guy that made Lucifer Rising? What's his name again? Jesus, I forget. Oh, um, oh damn it. Why do we forget names so easily nowadays? Well, you know, you were getting to that age. God bless America. We are embarrassing. <laughs> we are embarrassing here at the GGTMC. Jesus Christ. Yeah, what are you going to do? Why don't you Google that for me while I'm uh, talking here? We need the Google machines to get through our podcast. Um, <laughs> I would assume finding money, though, and funds to produce these kind of films was probably not easy. Um, I'd say by the 80s, people could care less about spending money on porn films or even slightly made porn films. Kenneth Anger. Oh, Jesus Christ, of course it is. How about that? Yeah, As soon as you, <laughs> as soon as you say... I was like, it's Kenneth Anger, yes. Yep. Uh, how disturbing. Uh, where although, is... although, funny thing, uh, Paul Thomas directed a video of the adult variety called Scorpio Rising in 2005. Mm, there so go. there you go. There we so I think that, you know, these filmmakers are also, in a way, what attracts me to them. And I don't know, and you know me, and everybody that's been listening to this podcast for a decade knows how I feel I like when filmmakers push buttons. I like transgression. I like those kind of elements in my storytelling. I like I like to be rattled. And I will say this is transgressive cinema mm-hmm. because it is it is pushing buttons. And there are certainly I mean, there's elements of this movie that it probably would get an X rating if it got released today. Um 
because the, yeah, it would not be in theaters. Yeah, yeah, because it would. It it's it's definitely got some. There's no penetration, but there is implied yeah. penetration. Yeah, uh, and there is a certain level of ugliness to the beauty of it. Well, that's 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 one of the the okay. So yeah, one of the one of the more interesting things in in this this movie is that it is it is far more overtly sexual than the uh, than the the movie that it's uh, a sequel to. Uh, and I, you could make an argument, I guess, about the, the 1920 film also being about sexual repression in a way, mm-hmm. though I can't recall ever getting into it in that regard. But uh, this this film is very directly uh, about this expression of, uh, of sexuality. And one of the bigger contrasts between the movies is that where, uh, you know, the, the 1920 movie emphasized the ugliness of its characters with the close-ups and heavy, heavy makeup. Uh, Syadian emphasizes like the glamour or like the, um, uh, the, the, uh, plasticness of his characters, uh, also through heavy makeup, uh, but more so by shooting, you know, these copious amounts of, uh, of nudity in, in more, uh, like glamorous ways, like more attractive ways in a way, like his, his close-ups are like, um, are more pretty for one of a better term, even though, it's not um it's not erotic it's still you know about this this sort of uh sexuality and the you know ugliness prettiness all this sort of thing i think it is anyway yeah but again it's one of those things where you know you get into it you get out of it what you put into it so right right and it it, it it's just got an odd tone too a tone that is so Saidian in a way if you see mm-hmm. his other films you'll see that the tone is pretty much thorough all the way through now the film does have fox harris in here this is fox harris's last film uh, Fox yep. Harris is a cult actor. Um, well, it, they say it's his last film. I don't know if it was. So, like, stuff came out in 1990, but they say it's his last film. So maybe it was the last thing he shot, and he ended up dying of lung cancer. Yeah. So it's odd that we got two uh, actors who died of some type of lung cancer on the same show. But uh, Fox Harris, uh, interesting actor, uh, very odd actor. He's been on the show before. He'll be on the show again. I think the last time he was on the show, he was in Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. Um <laughs> Just an interesting actor. He's one of those actors who just, he has an odd delivery and an odd way of performing. Yeah. He's almost uh, Lynchian in a lot of ways. Yeah. He reminds me of like a modern day Timothy Carey in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Just got a weird delivery and stuff, you know? Yep. Yep. Um, I would be surprised if Nicolas Cage is not a fan of Fox Harris. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um. <laughs> I've often said, man, if they ever make a Timothy Carey biopic or a, or a Fox Harris biopic, they should definitely cast Nick Cage because he's he's definitely channeling some of these guys. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, again, we talked about kind of the adult film market as art and what that gets into. So that's a gigantic conversation. But, uh, you know, I feel like we, we kind of touched on that enough. No need to really kind of get into it anymore. But it is, it is a weird, slippery slope. And uh, it's a slope that, for whatever reason, some filmmakers uh, through time have tried to capitalize on. I don't know if it'll ever happen. I d- honestly, I don't think it will now because I don't think pornography is, it, you know, pornography is, is clip-based. And, and you know, we, we made that joke on this show before, but it's true. I mean, it's been that way for a long time. Even before the internet, it was clip-based. It was basically, you know, a whole bunch of scenes piled together and, you know, hooker love volume six you know or yeah yeah 
you know, it's something like that. And it was just scene after scene after scene after scene. There's no, there's no. Plot. Well, it completely, it completely abandoned any pretensions yeah. uh, that it had towards, you know, coherence or you know any sort of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I don't want to say art because I don't know that that's the right word, but well, uh, towards story, yeah, really, or yeah, there was just no need for it because I mean. If you think about it, and they talked about this in Boogie Nights a little bit, right? But also, if you know anything, oh, about, absolutely. If, they, if you know anything about film history, once videotape hits, once people can afford a video camera, and you and I can go make a porn movie, yep, for five bucks, yeah. And if we can, you know, get it out there, there's a high probability we're going to turn a profit. That's the democratization of porn, Sammy. Yes. Yes. So don't you get it? That's the greatest <laughs> thing in the fucking world. <laughs> and it pretty much wiped out uh, a whole industry. Well, right, just like it's doing the film. Yeah, mm. I, I don't know if it wiped That's a whole other conversation. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if it wiped out the industry. I shouldn't say that because obviously porn's never been bigger than it is it now. It radically changed it. But it radically, yeah, it radicalized it. It it completely changed the format. It completely changed everything about it. So and sure. arguably that could be happening with film. We just don't see it yet. Uh, uh, I am on the <laughs> yes side of that uh, <laughs> yeah. statement. So. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Um, this is also a good example of how comedy can sometimes be transgressive. Um, sure, yeah, yeah. As in, like, you know, the scene where the, the husband kind of gets his comeuppance with uh, some penetration, yep. but they do it in a comedic way. And uh, those sheep legs that they eat are profoundly gross. Yeah. Oh, uh, there's a there's a bunch of gross shit in here. Don't they shave one of the sheep legs and then eat it? That, uh, uh that, I don't remember specific. There's so much in this movie flying at you. Oh my god! I, so don't, gross. I honestly don't remember off the top. Of my I head. mean, it's wild. It's a wild movie. It's 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 hard to explain this in words. I, I think yeah. That <laughs> it's yeah. it's a movie made for a certain kind of film fan. Like you have to be well, you have to be Todd and I. You have to be folks who listen to this podcast for a long time you have to be experimental in your attitudes toward movie and storytelling yeah because yeah. I, otherwise i don't think this this will interest you at all like if you want narrative you just need to go somewhere else i'm just telling you now yeah. you're not gonna i mean there is a narrative here there is a story in this movie but right off the get-go you you get the way that they're delivering dialogue in this movie will tell you everything about the movie within five minutes yeah yeah it's esoteric it's obtuse it's strange i mean it's it's the kind of line delivery that even like david lynch would be like what the fuck are you doing <laughs> you know even jack nance would be like well that's not how i would do it you know it, it's it's just one of those it, it, it's one of those films that it almost defies description uh, to talk about. It's one of those things where you almost have to set somebody down and say, hey, check this out. Yeah. Because it's so odd. And again, I, I would recommend people check it out, though, because I don't know I, I don't know how many people are, are adventurous enough to go out and look at the porn films. Um, maybe right. I say that and maybe everybody that listens to the show has seen Cafe Flesh, but I don't know if they have. Right. So if you're not that adventurous or you don't want to go the full adult route and that's fine. I, I don't think I don't hold anything against anybody. If they don't want to watch pornography, more power to them. I don't watch it all the time either. I only watch it when I need it. If you know what I'm saying, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm not saying anything anyway. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll go back and edit that out. Uh, the, the truth <laughs> is the truth is most people aren't going to go pursue that. And that's fine. I don't think you need to, although I would recommend that if you do see this film, 
you do check out some of those things because some of the pornography he shot is incredibly visual and odd. And that might not be in your taste, but I think it's kind of worth seeing in a weird way. And that's a strange recommendation for me because normally I would not recommend anything like that to anybody. But it's certainly the most unique pornography that I can think of off the top of my head. It's it's uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Uh, it will stick with you as much as stick on you. Yeah. Uh, if so. you, I would say the best way to describe it is it's Cronenberg with a sense of humor and full penetration. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, as as apt as anything uh, to describe yeah. Saadian. But what are the uh, odds? Also, watch. what are the odds? Also, that we pick movies two weeks in a row that have drills going into heads. How about it? Self inflicted too, right? Yeah, I mean, both of them. <laughs> I mean, what are the odds? <laughs> Is it one of those things where you saw Pine? You're like, yeah, I really want to do Dr. Caligari now. Or no, because like, I'd never <laughs> seen Dr. Caligari. Well, there you go. So <laughs> obviously, so I had no idea that that was in here. Wow, that's crazy. How I, about it? I think the movie's fun. And interesting, and it's it's a weird. I'm actually stunned that this don't have a release from a boutique label on Blu-ray. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's really fucking weird. Um, especially like Vinegar Syndrome or something like this uh-huh. seems like something like right up their alley. And I'm kind of surprised. And I'd I'd really like something like that. And I'd like some Saidian commentary because that he, would be interesting. Yeah. yeah, he's a fascinating guy. I think visually. And storytelling wise, and I would really like to know more about him. Um, I just think he's very interesting, a very interesting fellow. But I'll kick it over to you. I really don't have anything else. This is a, this is a tough review for me because I think the movie. <sighs> have you ever seen any films by Guy Madden? The uh, what? Uh, I've seen pieces of uh, Guy Madden movies. Okay, so Guy. Madden... Uh, no, I saw I saw the, the 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 saddest song in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was okay, it? yeah, yeah. That one's got a little bit more of a narrative to it, but. But you have seen Kutcher films, and you have seen, yeah. Have yeah. you have you seen any of the Kenneth Anger stuff? Uh, Kenneth Anger, no. Stan Brackage, any of that stuff? Nope. So you know, avant-garde filmmakers are always fascinating to me because they either work or they completely don't work. Well, that's kind of the, that's kind of why I don't uh, I don't tend to want to venture into them is because it is such a crapshoot. It is a crapshoot. It's a total crapshoot. And I'm just I'm, I'm just kind of like I really have to be in the mood. Yeah. I mean, I really have to be in the mood to uh, to want to go down that that road. I enjoy, which is odd then that I would pick this movie, but it is totally you know. odd that you would pick this movie. Yes, but <laughs> I'll say that you know the guy Madden stuff. There's a heavy slant of nostalgia in the guy Madden stuff. The Kutcher film stuff I can't explain in words. Um, the anger stuff is it's special, but it's special in a way that I again I can't describe. And I think that's the toughest thing about reviewing avant garde film is it really comes down to the person when you talk yeah, about it's absolutely personal. And I think that that's the same way with art. Like we, we do, I, well, I talked about last week about seeing that film about those uh, fake Pollock paintings. Some people look at a Pollock painting and they see the most wonderful thing on the face of the earth, right? Yeah. Some people look at a Pollock painting and they see nothing but thrown paint. Yeah. Um, but that's the great well, thing about that, avant-garde it's work. That, it's that, yeah. It's that thing. It's, I know it when I see it. Yeah. And that's, that's, that is the best way to describe this movie in a nutshell. You're going to see it and you're either going to be like, oh, okay. Or you're going to see it and be like, fuck you. I'll never watch this again. And fuck you for recommending it to me. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a lot of people very angry. So, yeah. So this is as divisive as it gets. So if, if you listen yep. to the show 
and you listen to it for the sole purpose, not for the sole purpose maybe, but for the purpose of playing along at home, which I know some of our listeners do, I will forewarn you in saying this may not be your cup of tea. <laughs> uh, that's an understatement, yeah. yeah. All right, I'll kick it over to you and uh, let you uh, Okay, so let's see here. Do, 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 do. Uh, so yeah, I mean the the world that uh, that he's that Saidian creates here is is just as artificial as uh, the one created in the uh, the Ween film. Uh, it's just as visually insane. Um, but I also think that uh, there had been close to seventy years of the art world. Uh, which imposes itself on Saeedian's movie. And it's very much of its time, uh, this movie is, uh, which I suppose you could say about its, prede- its predecessor as well, in fairness. Um, though this sort of thing uh, in the 80s has an inherent uh, sort of superficiality to it. Um, I could very easily uh, see how this thing could be made fun of because it is so self-conscious it feels like something that mike myers uh would have parodied on uh on sprockets on saturday saturday night live uh back in the day uh but at the uh, at the same time i think that everyone involved uh takes this all very seriously maybe too seriously i don't know uh and as a viewer you know i think that we have to decide uh if we're going to mock that or go along with it and me uh personally i am about uh half and half honestly Got to clear my throat for a second. Hold on. Sorry about that. Uh, uh, I respect and I value uh, the desire to uh, to express oneself, but at the same time, uh, there's just something innately mockable uh, about this level of uh, self seriousness in capital A art. Um, so I mean, yeah, that is uh, an aspect of it. Uh, Madeline Raynal, uh plays the uh, the titular Dr. Caligari um and she's uh, she's very, she's very intriguing uh she has a certain she has a great look first of all um but she has a, a certain accent or at least I thought she had a certain accent uh whether you know whether she's actually german born or not I I couldn't say uh, I believe she might be a dancer um in the in her day job um but uh you know the, the accent that she has; it fits the the cold, dark look that she has, and you know she does this. Uh, she does clinical insanity uh, about as anyone else does, I guess. Um, but she also manages to be somehow really, really magnetic, and not just for her looks. Uh, it's something that um, it's kind of ethereal. I can't quite put my finger on it, but uh, I, I think she's really great in this, um, and she really draws your attention every single time she's on screen, uh, which is fantastic, uh, and. <clears throat> All of this leads to the more feminist aspects of the movie, uh, aside from the uh, the spouting off of Caligari about women and orgasms and all of that shit. Uh, her her big idea is seemingly uh, to bring out the female side of the male characters. So she's putting what she sees as the victimizers or women in society, I guess, in the in the place of the victims. Uh, and there's this whole thing about freeing up the feminine, but. You know, this doesn't solve the insanity or the violence, and I kind of find that intriguing. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know, I have the answer or even if I'm interpreting any of this correctly, which is kind of what I like about art house cinema uh, is the ability to be wrong uh, about it. Um, but it's a large part of what I think uh, Cy Adian is ultimately getting at. <coughs> um, so even though 
this is obviously you know dirt cheap, handmade, and so forth. It does look good. Uh, there was a lot of thought put into the uh, the look, the lighting, the compositions in this thing. Yeah. Um, you say what you want about uh, about Saidian, but he's he's a thoughtful filmmaker. Well, that's a thoughtful what, yeah, I guess you that, could say. Well, that's that that's where he that's where he stands out, right? There's there's talent there. You can clearly see it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Um, and uh, but, but this is the this is the path that he chose. Though I mean, he could have done a million things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I mean, I think clearly right or wrong, successful th- or unsuccessful. I think he knew. I mean, I think by using the name Rinse Dream and making the pornography he made and then going to this and using his real name, I think that if this if this would have succeeded, I think you would have saw more films of a different variety from him, but I think I think so. Yeah. I don't I don't know for a fact what this did or how it did. This, this I don't think this did much of anything except for get some buzz on the uh the art house yeah. circuit. And, so uh, and certainly, it, it got some from the uh, from genre magazines because of its connection to uh, yeah. to the original. Yeah, right. And which um, is which is smart too, right? I mean, that kind of sure can maybe get some things going for him, uh, get people in seats and stuff. But yeah, I think sure this didn't do. I, I I didn't look and see if there was a box office here. I'm looking. Uh, I didn't either. No, I'm looking now to see if there is. I don't see any numbers or anything, so I have no idea what it did. But let's just say that it probably didn't do well. Yeah, and, I'm gonna say that if it if it made its money back, I would be surprised. Yeah, and he probably just said, "Well, you know what? I'm just gonna go back to doing what I know how to do, doing something that actually turns a dollar." Yep, uh, and doing it the way that I want. Mm-hmm. Um, so the uh, the Gus Pratt character, who's played by John Durbin, uh, gives the film a bit more depth and a bit more dimension uh, because he's a serial killer he's a cannibal and he's uh caligari's other major patient aside from the van houten character uh but the 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 interesting thing with these two the van houten character and the uh and the pratt character is that they both mingle uh violence and sex they just come to them from opposite angles Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so van houten's sexuality leads to violence and pratt's violence leads to sexuality and the two intermingle yeah uh it's also interesting that pratt looks like an insane serial killer yeah. While Van Houten looks like a porn star, just to kind of drive home the point. <laughs> yeah, well, what's his name? Durbin. He's he's a bit, he's become a bit of a cult actor too. If you really yeah, think about it, he, yeah, yeah. He's he's been in more stuff than uh, than you might uh, than you might think, and you you'll recognize him from a couple things. Yeah, he's a uh, he's uh, an I interesting think most guy. People would anyway. Yeah, and this is a really odd performance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's my favorite performance in the movie, though. It's so uh, it's so over the top. I love it. Yeah, yeah. No, he he uh, he and he's a very. Uh, yeah, he draws you. He draws you to him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, although I, you know, I mean, like I was saying uh, a little bit earlier, I, I tend to find uh, Caligari herself uh, much more, uh, yeah. much more of a draw. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's just something about it. There's, I, there's something about her that I, I just I cannot place. No. Uh, that uh, that just I mean I'm I'm, I'm instantly smitten with uh, with what she's doing. Not necessarily in a sexual way or even you know an attraction way but just you know i find her really really charismatic really really magnetic yeah i don't know what it is uh, about her yeah i don't know what it is about her either uh but uh well, she I, i'm not sure i'm not sure you know it, where is she from is yeah. she from is she from germany i don't did know she, did, did you pick up on the accent i picked up on the accent i can't tell if it's german or some type of french or yeah, right? what it is i'm I, like i have no idea and she's only did she only did two movies she only did space mutiny right. and this yeah, how about that for a fucking filmography? 
<laughs> so, uh, clearly, so she didn't have a good filmography. Time. Yeah, clearly. I celebrate her back catalog. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And Space Mutiny, for those who don't know, is uh, it's a Red Brown John Philip Law film. So that uh, oh, is it ever? <laughs> and that one has uh, James Ryan in it. Yes, it does. Cameron Mitchell as How well. About that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've yeah, seen yeah. I've seen her whole filmography as well, and uh, <laughs> this is probably the better movie. <laughs> This is probably the better. Let's say that. Let's let's put a, a fork in that one. This is definitely the better movie. But, but um, she, yeah, I don't know where she's from. She's a mystery to me. Uh, I, I could not find a thing about her online. Yeah. Not yeah. a thing. It's interesting. Uh, so yeah, um, so yeah, no. But the the movie is getting into some some deep stuff, or at least it's playing around with some deep stuff and letting you uh, letting you roll it around. Uh, for yourself, uh, I also really like the uh, the gross out makeup stuff that the movie's loaded with. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are more than enough giant rubber tongues, superating wounds, and uh, barbecue smothered tentacles uh, <laughs> to satisfy any special effects nut and or Lynch and Cronenberg uh, aficionado. And speaking of Cronenberg, uh, there is a pegging moment in this movie that I think he'd appreciate. Oh yeah, um, <clears throat> which oh, yeah. I believe you mentioned. Yes, um, I did. Oh yeah. But if I'm uh, <laughs> but if I'm being honest. I, I kind of think that it's this stuff more than anything else, like the 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 rubbery, you know, special effectsy stuff, uh, more than anything else that wins me over uh, into the camp of liking this thing. Um, beyond just my love of uh, special effects makeup, I like that Sadian is more than happy uh, to load the movie with it and totally embrace it. Mm. Um, and the, uh, the 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 rubbery quality of this uh, stuff counterpoints, or maybe really reinforces, I think, uh, the artificiality of the people in the movie. Uh, so, I mean, it kind of plays to theme as well, in a way. Uh, so I give the film a wider berth than some others might. Um, and uh, and again, yeah, I mean, like we said, it's, it's it is very it's personal. It's it's what you 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 get what you give, uh, and that is very much. Uh, I think, we thought that I would be quoting the new radicals uh, today, but <laughs> I think that Miss Raynal is Argentinian because her sister, oh? her sister is a top model, and she is born in Argentina. So, okay, so Argentina might be where Miss. Uh, there you go. From, so. I would have said Germany a hundred percent, but hey, then again, I would be wrong. That's as close as I can get to anything on Madeline. Well, then Ronaldo. again, a lot of Germans moved to Argentina after a certain war. I don't know what you're talking about. If you know what I mean. Don't know what you're talking about. Well, let's get Simon Wiesenthal and ask him. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Who thought we would get this topical? <laughs> anyway. Uh, and then, you know, finally, I, I mean, we've, we've kind of drilled this thing into the ground. No uh, no pun intended. Mm. Uh, we but pe- the guy. We, uh, uh, we pegged it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> got to taste it. Got to taste it. Anyway. Uh, chinchilla. Um, so. I gotta say, just as a final note here, uh, the the guy playing the uh, the scarecrow in this thing is a real trooper, uh, because I do not know how quick I would be to stuff my pants with hay. Ooh, uh, that looks painful. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out how uh, they got the smoke effect in there. I guess they probably just <laughs> ran probably somebody with a tube and cigarette smoke kind of just blowing it up through there. I'd imagine. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, I would think so. But I kept waiting. Dude, hay, hay on your fucking on your on your bits. Yeah. No, that'll that'll poke and stab and every other fucking thing. Oh yeah, we talked about that back in the cry of the prostitute days. You know, you just don't do yeah, that. Yeah, right. Hey. No. But the the uh, thing the thing is about that scene. Uh, how could they not get a corn cob of corn to come out of there? I mean, <laughs> that might have been too on the nose for Sadian. Yeah, that might have been the NC seventeen moment. Yes, indeed. <laughs> 
but that's that's all I got, man. Kick it over to you for uh, for make or breaks and now what? All right. Um, man, man, this is a tough one. This is a tough one. I mean, my MVT is easy, but everything else is tough. Score wise, even is tough for me. I don't even. Mm-hmm. I really didn't even write down a score because I don't know where I stood on it. Uh, the flesh wall. I'm gonna go with that for the make or break. It's a <laughs> it, it's a unique moment in a movie full of unique moments. Uh, just a lot of stuff I didn't expect to see. Uh, I saw this a long time ago. Um, but it's one of those ones that you know it it doesn't warrant a bunch of repeat viewings. Not right. because of the quality of the movie, but because I think it's kind of so profound that I don't think you'll forget it for a while. So I've only seen this twice. I saw it back in the VHS days, and I saw it just now. Hmm. And uh, but it's funny. I could I, as soon as I started watching it, I'm like, oh yeah, this is the movie with the big tongue, and this is the movie with those those weird sheep legs. I can't let, I can't let that sheep leg thing go. <laughs> Well, like, I know what you're having for dinner today. I like it. out of all the disturbing things in this movie, the sheep leg thing bothered me the most. <laughs> and I think, like I said, I think it's because they either wanted they're peeling the hair off of them while they're eating them, or they're shaving it off of them while they're eating. Either way, maybe it's not shaving. Maybe it's shearing when it comes to sheep. It would be shearing, yeah. Either way, it's fucking gross. Okay. Oh yeah. And it bothers me. Um, ugh. But I'm gonna go with the flesh wall because that scene bothered me too. But it's 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 avant garde and artistic and bizarre and slightly erotic. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but it's it's a weird moment in a movie full of weird moments. Uh, MVT for me is Saidian. This is all him, all the time. It's on the tin. It's on the box. It's in the film. <laughs> it's, yep. It's as much him as anything. Uh, this could be again uh, to varying different degrees. This is where. Uh, you know, I bring up the Rob Zombie argument that I understand people don't like his movies. Uh, I yeah. get it. Yeah. Aww. Uh, but <laughs> you can't argue that when you see a Rob Zombie movie, you can't argue with me that you're not seeing a Rob Zombie movie. <laughs> no, you can't. He's no, uh, you can't. It, it's a varying delete levels of uh, quality frustration. and frustration. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, his films are his films, so I'll I'll give him that. Mm-hmm. Like I, I can't see the guy like he's one of those guys and Saidian's the same way. You know, I, I don't see you know, they they hired Eli Roth and he made like a kids movie, The House with the Clock in the Walls or whatever, and like Roth can he can move into other things. Uh some filmmakers I don't think I don't think they're capable of moving into anything else. Like I'd love Well that's why I'm always I'm always interested speaking of you know, just to tangent off to zombie for a second, that he was at all involved with and was really pulling for that whole broadway brawlers thing yeah me too about the flyers yeah uh, i mean because that's completely uh you know <laughs> not the expectation for rob zombie yes um but at the same time i would have i i still would be interested to see that from him sure sure uh, just to see if he could pull it off if you know i mean as long as he used somebody else's script um <laughs> yes but um yes I would have. I, I was really interested in that too because whenever you take a filmmaker out of their "quote unquote" element, I think you can get some interesting, if not great films, or some interesting, if not great disasters. Yes, and oh, yeah, uh, that's that's what as film lovers, that's what we want to see. We want to see. We want to see that. We want to see. Well, I, I don't want to see somebody fail. I'll just be honest with you. I don't want to do that. I never want to go into a movie and see somebody fall in their face because that means the movie's going to you know, be a smoking turd, and I just wasted my yeah. time too. But exactly. 
Um, but I do like experimentation and I would have really, and I hope that still happens, but who knows? It might not. Um, my score for this film is going to seem a little low, but it's not that I didn't enjoy the movie. I just think it's a tough movie. Right. And being right. that I've only seen it twice, it's hard for me to go much higher than this, but I'm going to go to 6.5 out of 10. I recommend folks check it out. What you get out of it is going to come down to you though. Oh, hundred percent. And uh, you know, it's one that I could see going up in score. The more I see it, like the deeper I dive into it. Right. I just don't know how much I want to dive into it. If that makes sense. Right. 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 So I'm, I'm kind of happy where I am with it now. I've seen it twice in my lifetime. I really don't know if I need to see it again. <laughs> I don't, I, mean, I, I that, that might sound like a, a slap in the face, but I mean, I would watch a high definition version of this. I would rewatch mm-hmm. it with a special edition Blu-ray or something. Certainly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, uh, otherwise I'm Caligari'd out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so my oh, big is- wow. <laughs> <laughs> give me that. Give me that. <laughs> uh, so my make or break is going to be, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> <Fuck it. laughs> right. that's right man all right okay okay <laughs> and scene uh so uh make or break for me is going to be the uh the first scene with the uh the pratt character uh i think that this is the point where the uh the film actually starts to develop its ideas beyond just throwing weird nonsense at the audience when the, um when the rubber hits the or road maybe, was that that's when the rubber hits the road yeah, right. Uh, or, you know, maybe it, it reiterates that the film insists it just wants to throw weird nonsense at the audience. Um, either way. Uh, MVT is Syadian. I mean, yeah, I'm 100% in agreement with you on that. This is his his baby. Uh, stem to stern. Soup to nuts, as they say. Uh, and score for me, I'm, I'm actually surprised I came in higher this week on both movies than you did. I know. Uh, especially since <laughs> I'm more critical of both of them. You're such you're such, such an optimist this week. I what the fuck? I'm <laughs> taking my cues from Ben Affleck's Batman and Justice League. Yeah, there you go. Um, uh, I am a seven out of ten. Nice on this. Uh, just uh, like you know, the Hunter. Like I, I said, I mean, I'm I'm right there with you in some ways, but well, I I would uh, so I I 100 percent agree that this is not for everybody, and I definitely don't see me re- revisiting this all that often. But it, it it's 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 better than I anticipated, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and I would recommend it for the more adventurous among us. Um, but I mean, I I I picked this thing in the first place just because I wanted to do something just 180 degrees from stuff that I would normally be picking. Uh, number one and number two, I just wanted to see you know how this measured up to Party Dollar Go Go. Uh, to be perfectly honest, and it's very very similar in a lot of ways. Um, but I also I also knew going into this that it was going to be a lot of you know very self conscious like capital A arty uh, sort of stuff. So and I know that that normally kind of is a bit of a turnoff for me because I'm just like you know eh, just fucking say it, don't fucking bang me over the head with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is that kind of movie in a lot of ways. So I, I mean this should be something that I, that I am a, 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 you know a hundred percent against. Uh, but it, it got me in there, man. And it got me in there. Like I said, I think with the, uh, when he starts to throw out the, uh, the special effects stuff, uh, and tie it into, uh, the, the themes of the movies, I think it really, that really is what, you know, kind of drew me in and kept me there. Um, yeah. and yeah, I wound up, I wound up being more impressed with this thing than, uh, than I had, uh, than I had expected to be. So, yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's, that's the important thing in movies, right? I mean, you just never know what you're going to get. 
Indeed, you don't. Um, all right. So that's our thoughts on Dr. Caligari. Might be a tough one to find. You might have to dig around out there a little bit, find it. Because I don't think uh, it has you were probably going to have to dig around. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it has a modern. Uh, uh, I don't even know if it has a DVD release. I don't think it does. Yeah, I have. N- I have never seen one. If there is, so you're going to have to maybe even hit the uh, the aftermarket out there, <laughs> mm-hmm. or the gray market, so to speak, or even mm-hmm. or even worse. Uh, you know, it is what it is. Some films just aren't as readily available as they should be. That's what I'll say. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, all right, that is everything. Um, what are we doing next week, Todd? What are we talking about next week? We're gonna watch a couple of movies, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, so we'll probably I made do. up my mind. We'll probably do that. Uh, yeah, no, <laughs> I uh, I am picking my ass. No, I am picking uh five million years to Earth, uh, aka Quatermass in the Pit, nineteen sixty seven from Roy Ward Baker, um. Because I wanted to get uh, a Hammer mover, movie on here, and I wanted to get back into a little Nigel Neal action. Yep. Um, and just to uh, kind of counter what you picked, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, a lot of times, Todd and I will uh, just, you know, behind the scenes, uh, for those who podcast and everything else, a lot of times we will pick the adverse or the complete opposite of what somebody else picks. So if Todd shoots over a pick to me, I'll be like, well, I'm going to go this way. Because again, that's part of the fun of movies, right? Is you can, you know, we we could obviously the Batman and Batman Returns was fun, but it, we stayed in within that world, uh, and that's fine every now and then. But it's fun to kind of go completely <laughs> one eighty or three sixty, uh, huh? to say the least. Uh, I'm picking uh, Schlock, uh, which has an Arrow release, um, so I guess the show will be sponsored by Arrow next week. Um, this is a uh, kind of an infamous film. Um, I don't know how to describe it, but it seems like with you, it always brings out the, there's something about you that always brings out the uh, monkey in me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what that says, but this is a, you know, this movie is the same age as us. It's a glorious 1973 film. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, directed by one uh, John Landis. Who people may have heard of. And, uh... Yeah, it's uh, infamous for a few reasons, and we'll get into that when we talk about it. <laughs> it should be fun. It should be a fun conversation, to say the least. I, I like doing absurd movies every now and then, and this is about as absurd as it gets. Uh, it's up there. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I guess you could say that Caligari's absurdist in a lot of ways, too. Uh, what? Yeah. This yeah. is a different type of avant-garde film. <laughs> Schlock. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the type of movie it is says so right there in the title, right? Landis knew, yeah. knew what he was doing. Yep. So, yeah, we'll uh, talk about that next week. So it'll be Schlock, which I'm watching a Blu-ray of. That's insane to even say out loud. <laughs> and then uh, 5 Million uh, Years to Earth, which is a uh, – is that the more popular – that's the cater, that's the Catermass film, the, the Catermass film. Is that how you say it? Catermass? Quatermass? Quatermass? Quater. Uh, that is the, the one everybody loves, right? Uh, generally speaking, yes. That's the, uh, John Carpenter. John Carpenter loves that film. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. It's very influential on Carpenter. Here's a big confession. I've never seen it. Oh, okay. How this about that? Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about that? So it's one I get to tick off my to-do list that I've always nice. wanted to see and I've just never gotten around to. Um, so that's always fun too. 
uh, it still happens to even the guys who've seen uh, it seems like everything. We still every now and then are like, huh, never seen that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Constantly. Dude, I just rattled off how many this episode alone. Yeah, really. Um, all right. That's the big show. We hope everybody has a good week. Stay safe out there. Have a good Easter. Do whatever you got to do. And uh, take care. And we will say adios. Chinchilla. <laughs> yes. Chinchilla. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. And you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com. Thank you.